Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. Ryan Nicodemus is at Burning Man this week. He'll be back on the podcast next week, but fear not. I'm here with Malabama. Hey, everybody. T.K. Coleman is in the studio. What it is. Oh, man, we have a uh, very special episode for you today. The rest of our team is here as well. Big thanks to our patrons. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free. Because say it with me, y'all. Advertisements suck. Oh, yes, they do. We have two very special guests in the studio today. They wrote this book, which if you're watching the live stream right now, it's not even out yet. But by the time this episode actually comes out, you'll be able to check out the book. It's called It's Not Me, It's You. Please welcome John and Vanessa into the studio. Yeah. Thank you. So John Kim, Vanessa Bennett. You are both therapists, and and I learned about your story in the book and how you two met and how you've worked with a lot of people. But what I loved about the book is that you didn't profess to be some sort of gurus or saints. Hey, guys, we finally figured it all out. Right. And now here are all of the answers. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's it's sort of the opposite about this. So what is the impetus of, of writing a book like this together? Ooh. Well, I think first and foremost, it's exactly that. So it's this idea that people have this misconception that therapists have their shit together. And we're here to say we do not. (laughs) We did not then. We do not now. Uh, But it's to humanize us, right? It's to show that we ourselves struggle with relationship issues and that we also use what we're working with our clients on with ourselves and in our own relationships. I think that was one. Yeah. And also for me, uh, after a divorce 12 years ago, um, I decided to work in a way that was more honest to me, and it was um, uh, unconventional. I started using uh, Google Hangouts when it first came out, and as therapist, you weren't supposed to do stuff like that. Mm. I started meeting people at the park, taking them into the CrossFit box, and I was like, you know, um, I don't want to stop that. That's always been the flag I was waving. So if I uh, co-authored this book with my partner, um, we got to show ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. we don't want to come at people. We want to come with them. And mm. so... We're like, all right, if we do this, we have to show our stains or else um, we're just going to be pointing fingers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah. It, so that's why it was hard to write the book. Uh, it brought up a lot of shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think more broadly or more generally, it became really obvious after years of working with couples that um, I keep saying the top 10. I don't actually know how many chapters are in the book. I probably should do. I probably should read that. Um, <laughs> but let's just say the top 10 issues that our couples that we work with struggle with, we struggle with ourselves. And so it became right. very apparent, like, oh, we're actually not that special. No one's really that special in your relationship. Like we're all struggling with the same shit. So let's dive into as many as we can. Yeah. Um, you know, I had somebody the other day say it was a cornucopia of relationship advice. I was like, I'll take that. Uh, and then give all of these kind of like, again, top 10 examples of what, what we all struggle with. Well, we're going to talk about what people struggle with today. This is a listener driven show. So I thought we'd just dive right into our callers. Yeah. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, you can give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo 
to podcast at theminimalists.com. Our first question today is from Caitlin in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Hi, my name is Caitlin, and I'm a Patreon subscriber from Fayetteville, Arkansas. I'm in my mid-20s, and I've never been in a serious relationship. After spending years focused on building my career, I'm in a stable job, and I've done a lot of inner work on myself. How do I intentionally pursue finding a life partner without clinging to that pursuit? Mm. I want to start a relationship from a place of intentionality and health, not out of desperation or loneliness. What a thoughtful question. Yeah, yeah right? Especially for somebody question. in their mid-20s. Like, no offense, mm-hmm. but that, that says something about Caitlin. You want me to go first? Yeah. Uh, I would say um, to build a life. So I, I, I heard this when I was um, going through my rebirth, and I've always kept it in my back pocket. Um, where are you going, and then who's going with you? If you reverse the order, you'll be going alone. And I say that because I spent most of my mm-hmm. 20s and 30s trying to find out who's going to come with me before where am I going. So I put the relationship or the person above um, my true north or my passion or what I wanted to do. And so what happens is uh, then there's this, um, this this stickiness in that dynamic where um, – you're putting people on pedestals. You're hanging your happiness or, or life on the relationship. And uh, also you, you go from uh, – in my case, I went from mouth to nipple. I went from um, you know someone who uh, was building something and then found love and then lost myself. And the dynamic of the relationship changed where I was more like her son than her partner. Mm-hmm. So, Vanessa, I find it – what's interesting here, and I think you allude to this in the book – but needing a relationship becomes a type of relationship clutter in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think what John is saying here is if we're heading in one direction and then someone else we meet, they drag us in a separate direction. When we talk about clutter as the minimalists, what right. we're really talking about are things that get in the way. Right. Now, obviously, there's material clutter, and we talk a lot about that. But once you get past the stuff, there's all of this other clutter, mental clutter, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter, right. and of course, relationship clutter. And I think part of that clutter is thinking we need someone, a particular person or a, or a type of person to complete me. Mm-hmm. And you, as you talk about in the book, that's a bit of a myth. Yeah. I mean, I think actually I've never heard you say what you just said, John, and I love that. I'm probably going to steal that. Do you even that know me? For later. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, noted. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think what you said is spot on. I think it goes back to what you're saying, you know, Joss, it's like, if we are worried about building ourselves and we're focusing on our passion, what lights us up, what, what kind of gets us up in the morning, right? And drives us, then what's probably going to happen is you're going to draw people into your sphere that complement you and that um, illuminate you in a way that it's going to be the opposite. If what, like John's saying, you're worried about the people first and then yourself and your passion second, right? And so I do believe there is a clutter to the neediness that we have around relationships. Now, all that to say, I don't want to place blame on people because that's a societal thing right? That clutter comes to us through messaging that we get from society, that we are not complete unless we are partnered, right? right? That we are not complete until we have the big house and the fancy car. I mean, y'all know this well, it's what you guys talk about. And so I think it's really important. And I do think there has been a shift as of late where we do start to turn it on its head and kind of go at it. Like you said, John, which is like me and spirit first, and then allowing the rest to come in as a way to kind of just be an added bonus, but not be it. Now, Vanessa, right. don't, don't, don't people think that is selfish, though? Oh, but I should, of course, mm-hmm. be subservient. I should yes. follow their needs. Right. Of course. But then what happens if we do that? We're codependent as all hell. 
right? I mean, that's what that is. Like, and again, societally, I mean, we, we live in a codependent society. We are taught that relationships and love look, feel, sound, smell like codependency. You lose yourself in each other. You're complete when you meet somebody else, right? You are incomplete when you're on your own. So if we really want to start breaking these codependent patterns that we've got as a society, it's not that it's selfish. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. I think it's more selfish to go into a relationship when I don't really know who I am or have my own passions and expect the other person to complete me and make me happy mm-hmm. than actually coming in knowing what makes me happy and then knowing that this person is just a cherry on the Sunday. That feels a hell of a lot less selfish to me. By the way, there's a reason why Vanessa is called the Coda Yoda on TikTok. Can, can you tell us the your definition of codependency? Because I, I love John's interviewing me now. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Let me give the baton back to you. I just... Yeah, I mean, look for those who are listening. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the big things I talk about, but it's it seems more complicated than it is, right? So the way I break it down is just simply this: if you're good, I'm good. If you're not good, I'm not good. That in and of itself is codependency, right? My emotional self is based outside of myself. My sense of worth is found outside of myself. Myself. My emotional state is based on somebody else's emotional state. And that is literally the country that we live in. I mean, that's how we look at love. For many of us, that's how we've learned to do friendship. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's All how, relationships. That's literally how some people would define yes. being empathetic. Yes. When you're down, I'm going to be a good friend and be down with you. Yep. Or else I overwhelm you with my joy. Mm. So how do you yeah. how do you maintain your own joy when someone you love is right there next to you in a dark state without without making them mm. feel like you don't care? Mm. Yeah, when you said that, like overwhelm you with my joy, it just like hit me right in the heart. Also, as a as a man, locker rooms, yeah. it's like if you're my boy, you go down, I'm coming down with you. There's yeah. like this yeah. weird kind of loyalty to yeah. it that is uh, romanticized, um, but I don't think it's healthy. For me, it's like, I'll give you my hand, not my life, right? So if mm. you're going through a depression, um, of course I care about you. I want to know how I can support you, but I'm not also going to go through the depression as well because you're going through a depression. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, so like a, a practical situation, let's yeah. say um, you, you show up at work or you show up at home and you say to a friend, hey, how's it going? And they tell you my day is horrible and they right. go on. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they say, how about you? And yep. the truth is that you just won the lottery. <laughs> right. <Yeah, yeah>. right. <laughs> but yeah. you don't want to be like, well, yeah. I'm doing fantastic. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm a millionaire yeah. now. Yeah. What do you do in those kinds of moments? I think there's a way for you to empathize and then but not rub it in their face. I think there's a difference between still maintaining your own joy and not feeling bad about the fact that you're in a good place and rubbing it in someone's faces, right? There's a line there. So in that practical example, it might be, maybe I don't in this moment talk about the fact that I just won the lottery, right? I can still talk about that maybe later, but maybe right now it just becomes, wow, I'm really sorry to hear that. I'm sorry that you're going through such a hard time. But, but also you can say you're doing well because that's, you are doing well. Yeah. You sure, shouldn't have ask. to hide that. Right? right. Right. You don't have to say, I just won $800 million. Right. But, um, <laughs> that's I'm, that I, line, I'm having right? a good day and that's my mm-hmm. truth, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Now in the book, uh, the subtitle is break the blame cycle. And quite often when I talk about the blame being immature, I mean, it's the, mm-hmm. the telltale sign of immaturity because mm-hmm. it, it's a narcissistic trait as well. Whenever I, and blaming everyone else for my problems, my offense, mm-hmm. my desires, my inadequacies and in, in vocal quotes there. 
I, what I'm doing is I'm abdicating my own responsibility. I'm abdicating my own control. The very few things that I have control over, I'm now lending out to everyone else. And yeah. I'm blaming TK in a weird way. I'm giving him the power to offend me, yes. to make me upset. Yes. Right. It doesn't mean that TK should be a jerk all the time mm-hmm. because you know, I don't, I can't be offended by him. No, of course. Um, he can he can treat me kindly, but ultimately it is up to me to determine yeah, who I, I, ultimately I'm the one to blame. And, and I think I, I'm starting to understand that through through reading the book. What you're talking about here is is a, a type of personal responsibility. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this for me anyway, going through Al-Anon, a lot of this is very simple 12 step stuff. Right. It's sure. like, what is your 100 percent keeping your side of the street clean? And every, you know, TK and I were talking a little bit offline before we started recording that sometimes I, I, this doesn't go, this doesn't go over well with many, but even as a, as a couple therapist, I've had people come in for like, let's say infidelity. And one of the first things I I ask, I mean, after some rapport is built and I don't do it in an attacking way, but a lot of times I will turn to the person who's been cheated on and ask them, what was your role in this? What was your part in this? And let me tell you, they don't like that. They don't like that. And I understand where that comes from, right? I get that. I've been victimized. But staying in the victimhood space for too long is another way we give our power away, right? And by the way, there's always two people in every dynamic. And so, no, you might not directly have caused the cheating. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes I'll hear, um, you know, when somebody's at the place where they can own it, they might say something like, um, well, I noticed that things have shifted and I never said anything. I didn't speak up. The last six months, he's felt very distant or she's felt very distant or wasn't coming home. And I just didn't say anything. I just got resentful. Okay, well, that's your part to own, right? Again, I'm not saying you directly caused the cheating, but mm. when we get to a place where we can own our 100%, that's when the real conversations start. Until then, it's just the blame game. I'm the victim, you're the perpetrator. And that keeps us in a really unhealthy pattern. And, which, by the way, is really hard to do. Oh, and, totally. and Vanessa and I struggle with it as well. Um, ownership is difficult, mm-hmm. you know, especially if that's not the pattern. It's why it's one of the 12 steps, right? It's its, it's, its yeah. own thing. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. I remember se- several years ago, <clears throat> Oprah popularized the DVD, The Secret. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I do not want to get into the metaphysics of the law of attraction <laughs> at all. But there was a phrase that came out of that that became really popular, and it was, you create your own reality. Yes. And a lot of people started saying that, I create my own reality, I right. create my own reality. And there was a lot of backlash against that statement because it it sounded to some as a very privileged, privileged. sort of statement, yeah. right? There are people in this world that are deeply traumatized, right. they've mm-hmm. had really terrible things happen to them, and they're there asking, well, okay, I created my own reality, mm-hmm. someone attacked mm-hmm. me, someone mm-hmm. hurt, right. hurt me, I created that. What would you what would you say is the balance between self-ownership or personal responsibility and being honest about the bad things that happened to us that we didn't seem to yeah, invite? That's a really good question, TK. You want to do that? You want me to take it? Um, I think when we're talking about the relationship and conflict in the relationship, um, you do, in a sense, create your reality from the day you choose to love someone. And then as you get to know them, because, it, you know, love is a daily choice— you don't have to be in something if you don't want to, if it doesn't work for you, right? So um, there is a responsibility and not blaming in that. But when it comes to people's story, like trauma, that is uh, – uh, we have been um, victims. Mm-hmm. Like whether, mm-hmm. you know, there was sexual abuse or, you know, bullying or all the stuff that happens to us because, you know, no, no child enters adulthood unscarred. All of that 
um, I think is different than when you're in a relationship and you want to take ownership of um, how you love someone or what you bring to the table. Part of taking ownership is actually looking at um, your story, how you were wired and following that string down and realizing why you behave and act the way that you do. I want to build on that though and just say that even in those situations, because I, I know exactly what you're saying, the privilege around like, I didn't create this reality, right? No one is saying that you are to blame for the traumatic things that happen in your life. By all means, absolutely not. No one is saying that. And what that statement is saying is that if that has been your reality, what will you do with it now? Right. So there still is a choice, even in the most victimized to say, I'm going to stay in that place. Now, look, we could get into the whole like mental health services. Are they offered to people in different areas and different income brackets? All that we could. I mean, that is valid and fair. And it's about saying this has been my life up to this point. This is the deck of cards I've been dealt. What will I do with this hand? Right. And that I believe rather than look at it as victim blaming, that's actually giving you power back. And if we look at it like I'm going to take back control and play this hand, that feels a lot different than like I'm to blame for the reality that's happened to me. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Personal responsibility is not the same thing as self-blame. Yes. Yeah. Ooh, yes. Yeah, yes, like that. that's it. Wait, let me steal that from you. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> that down. I stole it from you. Just <laughs> we're we're, we're going to add an O to your name. It'll be TKO now yeah. with his uh, quotes. I love it. Uh, Caitlin, I'm going to send you a copy of this book. It's Not Me, It's You by John Kim and Vanessa Bennett. I think you will enjoy that mm -hmm. book and you'll find some value in it as you are making in this exploration. Our next question is from Zachary in Virginia. My name is Zachary Lutz and I am a true fan patron from Virginia. Would you guys be willing to have a discussion about the law of attraction as it applies to relationships? What do you think about these phrases? Like attracts like and you attract what you are. Okay, whatever. We're in LA so I can be a little woo-woo. But that's some woo-woo to that, That's woo-woo. <laughs> that's woo-woo. That was some law of attraction <laughs> shit right there, TK actually. The door. <laughs> well, all we're doing is revealing that TK didn't adequately prepare for the episode. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, touche. <laughs> we can blame that on the universe, I suppose. <laughs> oh, man. Well, let's talk about this because... It's a great question. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. And, and at the same time, I think some of these words get so brutalized, mm -hmm. they, they get weaponized in a way that they begin to lose, they've been rendered useless in many yeah. ways. We were having this discussion a few weeks ago, TK, the word manifest, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. yeah. But even like in your book, you talk about you manifested your relationship with John, mm -hmm. but That's you true. said it in a way where I didn't feel turned off by yeah. it because there was almost like you pause and you realize the, the irony of this or the cliche of it. And you acknowledged it, mm -hmm. but still were able to say, hey, there is something here. Yeah. The, what I was thinking about, there was something going on between this dynamic, this tension between the two of us that mm -hmm. formed almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And so some of these words, yeah, they've been rendered meaningless, but it's up to us to, to figure out what the meaning is behind right. it. What's the yeah. essence of right. the word? Well, even manifesting, there's work that goes into manifesting. The law of attraction, there's work that goes into that. There's work that goes into surrender. All of these words, I think we actually use them to say, well, that's just what happens, or I just thought it into existence. None of those words mean that. You still got to do work, you know, to manifest. Yeah, I think for me, and by the way, I should have said this in the beginning, but um, thank you both for actually reading the book. Because uh, not not everyone reads the book, you know. You're on the show, and and they just kind of ask you about it. But uh, um, when it comes to 
attracting someone, the way that I see it, if you want to bring it more to street level, is as we change and our lenses change, what we gravitate toward and what we want changes, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, it's the mm-hmm. whole uh, water meets water at its own level. What I wanted in my 20s is very different than what I want today at 49 in a relationship. So mm-hmm. in my 20s, uh, I just wanted sex and, you know, a nice butt. And, you know, I wanted to go eat out with people. I do have a nice butt. She does. I got, I got, I got, I got both. But, I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> but today. Wait, it sounds myself. like you still want the same thing. <laughs> He's got more layers. Well, I, I, I'm just, I, have no, I have not evolved or changed. And that's what I'm admitting. So today. He's still the same. It's what he wants exactly to say. He said he was going to keep it real. Yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> that's why I'm so angry. But um, by the way, his podcast is called The Angry yeah, Therapist. Exactly. This podcast. It's because I never grew. As a therapist, I never evolved. I'm mad about it. Yeah, I have a lot of anger. I don't believe um, you. <laughs> after the the marriage and many um, dating experiences, I've learned that um, yeah, it takes more than a nice butt, of course, to build a relationship. So, um, what I am attracted to these days is is a lot more than that. And so, what you attract is kind of what you go after, and what you go after is different hopefully, than what you went after in, say, high school, in your 20s, or even your 30s. And I would also say that sometimes people feel the opposite. It's like, oh, but I'm actually not attracting what I want into my life, mm. right? Like mm. the number of what times need. right? Yeah. somebody has said, like, I keep dating the same person, right? Like, I just yeah. keep dating all these narcissists. All right, well, tell me more about why you are attracted to narcissists. It's not about the narcissist. It's about you being the common denominator in the attraction to narcissists. And if we can do the the work there, then we can maybe break that pattern, right? So the idea of like attracts like, if we're talking about that kind of example, mm. what I believe is that unconsciously we are drawing people into our t- our sphere, again, that are there to teach us that are there to help us grow or help us level up or get deeper, whatever kind of analogy you want to use, if we look at it that way. If we choose to look at it as I'm being offered this opportunity, any relationship can do that for you, right? And so it's not necessarily like, oh, just like attracts like. It's like, or like is attracting what you need in your life right now. Yeah, attraction is, like. yeah. attraction is sort like. of a, a mirror yes. that projects our own aspirations yep. in a way. Sure. What or I shortcomings. Want- Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Both. It's sort of an amalgamation, yep. right? And so, you know, that, that judgment is uh, similar in that respect. Mm-hmm. Like whenever I'm judging someone, it's a mirror of my own insecurities right. in right. a Rejection. way. Mm-hmm. But when I'm attracted to someone, it's a mirror of my aspirations. Oh, I I like this about that person. Mm-hmm. Even with my wife, no, I don't want to have a butt as nice as my wife. But <laughs> I do want to appear physically attractive to the person who de- desires me, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. You want, you desire the desire of your partner. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why your hair looks so amazing. Look at that <laughs> hair. <laughs> I got to see his wife's hair though first. So I gotta see. Oh, her Stop. hair is great. <laughs> okay. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Although even like with my wife, so she's covered in tattoos, like yeah. head to toe in mm. tattoos and I have no tattoos. Um, and yet there's something there, not that I aspire to have tattoos necessarily, but I aspire for that comfort level that she has. The self-expression. And yes, the self-expression, that, yeah. mm, right. the, the creativity. Yeah. Right, right. What it represents, basically. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You did do a um, tattoo filter once like on IG or something like that. Yeah. Oh, how did it look? And I thought it looked really good. All yeah. Right, well, All right, well, we'll have to make a note of that. Alternate like sleeves or just one tattoo? Uh, like all? 
Well, my wife has sleeve, sleeve right, right, leg right. sleeve. I mean, it's she has a lot of a lot of tattoos. There might there not there might not be ro- enough room in the relationship for two people to be tatted that way. <laughs> yeah, she, she <laughs> sort of took my tattoos. Although, what, I mean, we both have quite a few. Yeah, we don't have sleeves though. She had sleeves. I wouldn't get sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you want to bring this home for Zachary? Yeah, you know, one thing I'd say about ideas like the law of attraction or any other idea is it's important to keep in mind the distinction between the what and the how. Mm. Sometimes we have generally useful ideas like hard work pays off or, you know, you'll make more friends by being friendly towards others than by begging them to be friends with you. Those are general ideas mm. that are that tend to be useful. But the how is when we try to come up with some overarching theory mm. to explain why that works. Why is it that hard work tends to pay off? Well, it's because God sees you working hard and he rewards you from heaven. Well, it's because <laughs> there's a, a law of physics that says, you know, uh, every action generates an opposite and equal reaction. And that's yeah. when we get into the realm of like debatable speculation. Right. And I think the law of attraction is getting at this idea that says the way you think, mm-hmm. the way you speak, not only to others, but to yourself, right. not just to the universe when you're saying affirmations, but your own inner monologue, mm, yep. the actions that you take ultimately determine the quality of your life because how you think and how you speak as a pattern, not as a single event, will shape the way you engage the world. And so mm-hmm. if you look at yourself as being unworthy of love, or unworthy of, of a good person, then you might have a person right there in front of you and you'll protect yourself from that mm-hmm. kind of relationship because your beliefs are incompatible with it. But I think people feel like in order to recognize something like that, they have to subscribe to a metaphysical theory that says our mm-hmm. thoughts are things or like, you know, like we're shooting out these invisible energy, mm-hmm. or, you know, yeah, arrows right. into the universe. And you can separate the magic and the mysticism from the generally useful idea that how we show up does affect how the world seems to show up That's for us. So well yeah. Said. Can yeah. I say something to that? Because I can relate to it directly. Oh. Um, I have a book called uh, I Used to Be a Miserable Fuck. And that was a true story from my okay. 20s and half of my 30s where I was in a chasing state, right? And so I talk about chasing versus attracting. And so when I was in a chasing state, I would exchange my truth for a membership. I would live outside in. I would seek approval and validation, which then lowered my frequency, mm-hmm. right? And it's also not attractive. When I um, started rebuilding my life, I got into more of an attracting state, right? Giving instead of taking, living inside out, standing on my truth, accepting my story, and then what happens is uh, you become more attractive. Yeah. You Everything. have more sense of self, right? Mm-hmm. You become, um, you're not the guy that gives the dead hand, uh, dead handshake. Fish. Yeah, dead fish handshake, which is one of the pet peeves. <laughs> you make eye contact. You have certainty. You walk into rooms different way. You know, you change the temperature. And so that actually, then you start meeting people and you start attracting. You have more opportunities and all that. Yeah, agreed. I just got the signal from Professor Sean over there to wrap this question up. Zachary, thanks for your question. Mike in Columbus, Mississippi has a question for us. This is Mike from Columbus, Mississippi. I'm kind of new back into the dating market. And I was just wondering what your advice was for maybe people that are, I don't know, maybe even a little insecure in the bedroom or how to approach that. I mean, if you have some concerns, is that something you should address like, like early on when meeting someone, maybe on the first date? Just so you're up front, or do you tell them, you know, or do you wait a little while, I guess, is what I'm asking. I would like to know more, like, what those concerns actually are, but I guess we can kind of... I, I would that. never uh, uh, announce the insecurity because then it just you're taking a black light to it, unless it's something that you have that is um, um, uh, uh, 
something that you've been struggling with your whole life that's maybe like like for example like um um erectile dysfunction or something like that sure. uh, that's very obvious so there can be a conversation about that right mm-hmm. um would you wouldn't have that on the i wouldn't lead with that on yeah, the that's first what I'm saying. day I wouldn't right? lead with it. Yeah, I struggle with ed I, yeah i mean yeah and by the way let's talk i mean if you could talk about ed real quick that is a marketing term that was invented yeah. by an ad agency right, to make money on pills yes yeah, yeah. to sell you prescriptions right. essentially yeah. right and so we pathologize almost everything, everything. Yeah. right? Yeah. More. As therapists, you all recognize how much we pathologize our insecurities. Mm-hmm. And those insecurities have been created by the people who want to sell us the right. cure. And they can only cure us if we have an insecurity around that it. thing. Right. Yeah. So yeah. maybe it's normalizing the insecurity. Maybe yeah. what he's insecure about, he doesn't have to be insecure about. Mm-hmm. But because, um, you know, commercials and advertising and, and I don't know... Uh, his blueprint of what he's tracing of what it looks it should look like in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. So, for example, pornography and, and, and locker rooms, if he's comparing his love experience to um, a giant should, then maybe uh, his expectations are, are very high. And yeah, I mean, I think fair. going on what you were saying, Josh, it's like when you look at things like whether it's ED, whether it's like we were talking about depression, all these things, it's like these quote unquote symptoms usually are there to either teach us something. They're actually there for us to look at and examine more closely. They might be looked at even as an opportunity. Like there might even be something that that's giving us, like providing us. So, um, I mean, we're assuming it's ED. We don't actually know that's what he's talking about. Well, actually I heard a longer version. There was totally a question about having a micro penis in here. Oh, Oh, size. And and Nicodemus is in here. I'd ask him about it. Damn. Wow. No, I'm, Damn. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm just intimidated by the size of his phallus. <laughs> the it's, truth uh, comes out. <laughs> yeah. He has a baby arm. I, I've, known him for, I've known him for 30 years. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, it's intimidating. I, we've lived together and my God, I'd run out of the room terrified, crying oh, sometimes. Wow. Hey, but I, I like jokes this. aside, that's, I think it's a real thing. It totally, no, absolutely. Really it, it totally is. Yeah. yeah. And But also what happens and not to make a pun out of this, but we blow it out of proportion. We make things bigger than what they actually Josh! are. <laughs> You're killing her over here. Alabama, I love you. Um, and, and so, but, the reason these things become a problem when they aren't generally a problem mm-hmm. is because we assign so, uh, we assign so much weight to some narrow individual characteristic yeah. about ourselves and our identity gets wrapped up in that thing mm-hmm. right and as soon as we do that i am this kind of person i am an angry person i am a sad person mm-hmm. i am a person of a small penis person whatever it is right now all of a sudden that's who I am. I, these are the guardrails I've set up right. for myself. It's pretty difficult to get out of that trap that I've set. Yeah, I mean, I'm totally fair. I, I think that there is also sometimes you can take the weight out of things when you do speak about it, right? And so this idea of maybe keeping it close to you, it does actually keep some of the power in the insecurity rather than almost like an ownership of it. Like, okay, this is one part of many of who I am as a person, to your point. This isn't who I am. It's a piece of who I am, right? What's the rest of me? What are the other components of self that I'm bringing to the table in the dating world? Um, You know, how can I actually do work to, um, I don't know, bring more to the table in other areas? Not to necessarily overcompensate, but so that I can show up and say, like, I am the best version of myself. This is just one small part. Oh, God. (laughs) One one part of myself. <laughs> I caught myself. Damn, the Jesus. subconscious. Uh, listen. Freud would be proud. I know. <laughs> I, uh, I, so I'm a grower. 
Oh, <laughs> I love how honest we're all getting. Yeah. I'm a grower. I don't have a baby arm. Uh, <laughs> I don't have a micro penis. I don't have a baby arm. But also, it's something that I have been insecure about uh, for most of my life until I started uh, dating women who said, actually, I don't prefer the stuff that we see in porn movies Truth. because it it hurts. Um, your size is actually I'm, I'm okay it's the with it. Best sex I've ever had, actually. I will say I could dance. There you go. It's right. the dancing that ripples into the bedroom, not right. the size. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but I realized growing up in the '80s, where parents, my parents were always at work, and you know I was at like 12, being exposed to images um, early on, way too early. Mm. And then I mean now with the internet and pornography. Uh, there's a brainwashing where mm-hmm. we think that we are less than or or uh, especially as a man, it's a generalization, but men hanging their worth on either what they've built or their penis size, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I could understand the insecurity of that, the going into the bedroom with that insecurity, obviously. Which you is know. why Viagra is the number one selling product, period, mm-hmm. of all time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. is it? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's made the most money pretty much of any, I think, any at least pill that's ever been created. Wow. Well, you guys don't do commercials, so they won't be on here. <laughs> <laughs> this is the anti-Viagra commercial, I think, actually. <laughs> you know, one, one thing I'll, I'll say here is that um, the, the worst thing you can do to any relationship is to require that relationship to be all things. Yes. To you. Every relationship Amen. needs the wisdom and support of other relationships. Mm. And this applies to sexuality as well. Mm. If you've got insecurities that affect you in the bedroom, you need to be having conversations outside of the bedroom with someone that you're not going into the bedroom with so they can help you process those insecurities and figure out how you're going to react and respond to them in a healthy way. And I would take that pressure off of the person you're going into the bedroom with to be the end all be all Mm -hmm. in the sense of playing the role of solving whatever that is. Amen. That would be, but I I anticipated an objection to my own Mm -hmm. thoughts here. And I I love to to ask you that this is so great because now I can answer questions, uh, object to my own questions and then have you get (laughs) me out of it. What if you don't have anybody to talk to about that kind of stuff, especially when it comes to sexuality, where it feels very private. Yeah. Who, Who do you go to? If you have have an insecurity about something like that. I mean, I was going to say a therapist, uh, but you're saying if that's not available, if it's too expensive, if that's not your your thing. Yeah. Because I, I think friends are good, but friends, you know, they're, they're loaded in the sense that mm-hmm. their um, friends can be very opinionated. Too close. Uh, it's too close. They could tell you what to do. They can make it about them. You know, the job of a therapist is to keep the space neutral and process it. And that's, I think, the, the most effective way. Um, friends and family, although they love you and they're not doing it intentionally, sometimes it's the worst place to go. <laughs> yeah. I, here's what I'll say. I agree. Therapy can be very expensive. It is a huge barrier to mental health, right? And again, we could go on a whole tangent about the way the system is structured in this country. But the the beauty, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. The beauty of social media has actually been that it has made a lot of things more accessible to many. So, so you know, mental wellness, mental health, even coaches. Like there are coaches that specialize in sex and sexuality mm-hmm. and all of these things that I am sure you could find and connect with somebody out there that's kind of speaking your language that could give you tips or ways to talk about things, scripts, things like this that could benefit you in this area of your life. 
it just takes a little bit of work. You know, even finding a good therapist takes work. It's not going to be, I meet this one person automatically to the best therapist ever. That's very rare. I say finding a therapist is like dating a lot of times. You got to find that person that you kind of vibe with, you know? Um, But I would say if you don't have the means to have a therapist, I agree with you. Friends and family are not normally the place to go. Mm. It could be support groups. I think group work has been very minimized. I think that we're actually finally coming into understanding actually group work can be hugely beneficial because we are social creatures and we do learn through other people. So finding support groups, which I'm sure exist, especially now everything's online, everything is done via Zoom. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you could find groups out there that you could connect to. That would be my go-to. Mike, I'd like to say this while we wrap up this question here. Ultimately, there's a, there's a fear here that is probably being blown out of proportion. Mm-hmm. The goal is to not get rid of all fear. Remember those t-shirts back in the not 90s? Possible. Those guys were in the no fear, no fear shirts. <laughs> and it's like, no, that's not what we want. We don't want no fear. Fear is merely data or information mm-hmm. that tells you about something. When we cling to it, it becomes worry. To worry about something is to pray for something bad to happen in the future. Mm. So in a weird way, you're clinging mm. to some expectation you have about the future. Here's the question I would ask for you, because fear is a consequence of future consequences. And fear is helpful. Mm -hmm. If a giant lion walks in that door right now, you better believe I'm going to fear that because I know there is an inherent consequence because I might get ripped limb from limb by that lion, right? However, if the fear is, oh, someone might not like me because I'm not well endowed. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you need everyone to like you? Mm. And by the way, don't you want someone to like all of you, to love you, to see you for who you are without trying to change you? That's what love is. And then, of course, if someone doesn't like that piece about you, wouldn't you want them to be honest? So what's the worst thing that could happen here mm. if, you know, if you take the fear to its terminus? Usually, oh, you know, someone's not going to like me, perhaps. And when you approach fear that way, it disarms fear because fear becomes merely a set of information. It's like a spreadsheet. And as soon as you say perhaps to the fear, yeah, what's the worst thing that could happen? Oh, maybe this person won't enjoy having sex with me. Perhaps. Mm. But the fear loses its dominant control. It stops being that scary monster in the corner. Let's move on to some social media questions. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Minimalists. In fact, before we get to the social media questions. We do this little segment called More About Less. Vanessa, Mm. I was wondering if you would be willing to read something as a jump off point from your own book here. I was thinking either we do the attachment styles, but I really like this opening um, called The American Nightmare. And Mm. I put little little sections, a start and an end here. If you wouldn't mind reading that. Also, thank you for asking Vanessa to read because I am not good at reading out loud. You are very eloquent, but I am definitely the reader in the relationship. (laughs) The most common reason our clients end up working with us can be traced back to a single story, what we call the American nightmare. The Norman Rockwell painting. Jack meets Diane at an early age. We're using stereotypically male and female names, but we've seen this story play out with many different relationship dynamics. Maybe in high school or college or in their early 20s, the collision is powerful. Each believes they've found their one, air quotes. Now life can really begin. So they run toward the picket fence as fast as they can. They get married, have kids, buy a hybrid SUV, because that's what happy looks like, right? That's the American dream. Looking into each other's eyes, wrapped in love as they stand in front of their brand new home, bought with a high interest loan because today it's next to impossible to save for a down payment and maintain good credit. 
His hand on her stomach reveals they are expecting. This becomes their Facebook cover photo. Then reality hits. Bills and diapers and everything required to start adulting. That is not the nightmare, though most people think it is. That's just a painting traced by the blueprint passed down from our parents combined with the cold realities of raising children and having a mortgage that nobody ever really talks about. We know this painting very well. It's the one we ripped down when our parents and or society hung it in our living room without our conscious permission. So we think the American nightmare doesn't apply to us. We know the picket fence has splinters, so maybe we try to go a different way. In our generation's version of the story, Diane spends her 20s exploring her sexuality and new drugs to connect to her spiritual self, and Jack works smarter, not harder, as he builds multiple startups instead of climbing a single corporate ladder. They meet in their 30s on a dating app and quickly have a kid because fertility windows are closing. Or Jack and Diane meet in their late teens and decide not to have kids, and instead of moving to the suburbs, they buy a loft downtown and settle into a pattern of coexistence where, instead of exchanging vows, they open their relationship and exchange partners. Many end up on our couch, thinking they avoided the nightmare because they didn't follow their parents' path or the traditional one. But they end up in the therapy room all the same. Because the nightmare isn't produced by kids or houses or corner offices or marriage. It doesn't matter what type of blueprint you're tracing. The nightmare is produced by what's underneath the painting, not being taught how to have healthy relationships, not knowing about attachment styles and their impact on relationships, having no clue about different love languages, codependency, and the importance of not repeating patterns. No one taught us that the lightning in the bottle may actually be dysfunction, not chemistry. We never learn how to create a safe space, communicate effectively, and fight without fighting. So we push things down, pretend, run, hide, numb. Then one day we wake up and realize we're not happy. Now we're processing our anger in couples counseling. We're not doing any work. We're just going through the motions because we don't want to be the bad guy. Or it's too late. We have drifted too far to turn back. It's not just about learning new tools for forgiveness at this point. Feelings have permanently changed. We believe we're with the wrong person. We want out. Mm, We want out. And we do this to ourselves frequently. And I love what you did there. You had the contrast. That's what the French philosopher René Girard talks about with object A, that one thing that we're willing to burn down our whole life for in order to get. And then often the pendulum just simply swings in the other direction. Our friend Peter Rollins, podcast guest, he's often on the podcast. So he talks about how He'll talk to priests and they can't stop talking about sex. And he talks to sex workers and they can't stop talking about God. Mm, Interesting. And you realize like, oh, we're looking for the other thing. We're looking for that fulfillment, that happiness, that security, Mm -hmm. and also the variety Mm -hmm. through externalities, through God or sex or whatever else is in between there. And what you're showing here is, It's not the American dream is inherently bad or evil, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't contain everything you think it contains. And the opposite of that, the polyamory or whatever else doesn't contain everything you think it contains either. There's nothing inherently evil about either one of those lifestyles, but understanding it's not going to completely fulfill you or satisfy solve your problems. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's, it's this idea that again, it's externality. It's like, I believe that 
well, we're shown, really, the, the, the struggle ends at the marriage. This is what we've been taught, right? The wedding is where all of the rom-coms mm-hmm. end. It's where all the Disney movies end, mm-hmm. right? We don't see five years into Cinderella and Prince Charming and she's screaming at him to pick up his socks for the 500th time. We don't get shown that in the Disney movies, right? Yes. That The marriage is not where the relationship ends. It's where it begins. And we could say marriage. I'll say that in air quotes. John and I aren't married, Yeah. right? Everyone I mean, assumes we are. Yeah, and even that, I think... I think can be a little bit of an antiquated way at looking at like, oh, this is my relationship. We are married. Mm-hmm. Either way, when it's a commitment in some some way, right? Um, that does not solve the problem. The problem actually begins when you say, I want to have a conscious relationship that is much bigger than both of us. And it goes much deeper than anything I've been taught to believe that relationships can actually provide. But shit, that takes a lot of work. Yeah, and you know, in high school, in college, uh, we, uh, no one teaches us no. how to fight without fighting. No one teaches us about uh, EQ or subtext or what's Nothing. underneath. Uh, so we walk into relationships knowing geometry, ge- but <laughs> yeah. not knowing yeah. how to fight <laughs> angles. Uh, <laughs> you know? But we walk into relationships um, with our, you know, trauma, our unhealthy patterns our dysfunction, all of that. And then, and then what we do is we blame. And then that's why going back to people who say, I've just, you know, keep dating the same person. um, That's why we need to break the blame cycle and create Mm -hmm. a a different love experience. Mm. Yeah. And I, and and I think you already said it, but I want to reiterate, we did not write that to say that if that's what you want, there's something wrong with that. Right. It's not to say that wanting marriage or kids or the boy picket fence is inherently wrong. It's more about questioning where does that desire come from? Bingo. Is mm-hmm. it your desire or is it a desire that you believe you should have because you don't know any other way because this is just what you've been taught, right? And questioning those desires can really get you to a place of, again, going back to the very first thing you were talking about, building that life first and then bringing people along for the ride that are kind of on your wavelength, right? Like they're on your level. They want to bring to the table what you want to bring to the table, that doesn't happen when you're running towards something that's just a should. Yeah, and that, that's back to Rene Girard with the mm-hmm. mimetic desires. Do I actually want this or did someone else, maybe even an advertiser, right. tell me that I want this? The reason we don't, even our YouTube channel is not monetized. Mm-hmm. We turn off all advertisements on YouTube because I don't want to, you already see 5,000 advertisers a day. It doesn't need yeah. to be 5,003 because mm-hmm. of the minimalists. Yeah, it's interesting to just think about how we inherit so many assumptions about mm-hmm. the way relationships work. It's it's similar to money in a way. Yes. Mm-hmm. We only know how other people are doing at the level of optics, but mm. we don't have these public transparent conversations about how much debt do I have? Mm. How much sacrifice do I have to endure in order to get to the place that I'm at? You know, and how happy does it make me? How happy does it not make me? Mm-hmm. And we're left in that place with relationships as well. And one of the things I love about your book is that you're doing what most of us feel like we can't do, Mm. not merely because we aren't afraid, but because we don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Where are the conversations Mm -hmm. happening? And how do you start another conversation on this stuff without seeming like you're prying at the level of being disrespectful in the same way that it's hard to just walk up to someone and say, hey, how much money do you make? Mm. How much debt do you have? It's also difficult to say, how's your sex life going? Are you two ever jealous of each other? But when you told that story about hearing Vanessa talk about the guy being hot. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, yeah. somebody else experiences this kind of stuff. Yeah. This is yeah. this is good. This but is it's good. also possible to experience something different. You know, that's why right. in the poly community, they refer to it as compersion. Mm-hmm. Although I see compersion outside of that as well. My daughter does something that I'm really proud of her about, you know, use a, 
a colloquial term, proud. I, I don't think I, I get proud in the same way that we talk about, but like I feel joy for her on right. behalf of her. Right. It's the same thing. And you can actually feel the same way. If, mm-hmm. if someone finds my wife attractive, that's not an assault on me. In fact, you could perceive it as the opposite. It is if you're living from a very ego state, which tells you that you own your wife. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or this idea that we have around relationships that there is some kind of transaction. They're very transactional in this in this culture, right? Like, mm-hmm. I own you, you own me, so you owe me something. Because we're married, you owe me your love. You owe me meeting my needs, right? Even children. We, we, we feel like we own our children. Because you're my child, you owe me discipline. You owe me respect. Nobody owes us anything, yeah. right? And so that even in itself, like this idea of like, I can feel proud or feel joy for somebody because of an experience they had. Feelings of jealousy are normal. It's what we do about it that yeah. becomes quote unquote, not normal, right? That becomes the like the messy side of behavior that we haven't really worked through or learned to own. Right. Mm. So like I can feel, I do feel joy. I, I know what some of John's exes look like. I'm like, hell yeah. Like she's hot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like bravo, high five. You know, I don't feel like that's some kind of assault on me and my person and who we are now in a relationship. That has something to do with me. Yeah, that's right. right. But I'm check glad you with, feel that way yeah. because I'm going there today after uh, this meeting. Yeah. <laughs> give, give, give her a hug for me. Tell her I said Alabama, hi. Let, let's check in with our uh, Patreon live stream. Professor Sean, before we do that, can I get a timer up on the screen, please? Beautiful. Uh, Alabama, what do we have any questions from our live stream? By the way, uh, if you're listening to this after we've recorded it, every Tuesday at 10 a.m., we do a live stream for our video subscribers over on Patreon. What do you got for us, Alabama? We have a question from Jessica. She says, my new husband is Korean and his culture has specific expectations of me as his wife. I feel like I knew who I was and then lost myself when I got married. How can I reclaim my identity within my relationship? Oh, that's a good one. It's close to Uh, First, Malabama, when you laugh, I want to say I'll have what she's having. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, that that unapologetic. I don't hold back. I I love that. Amen. That is is your solid self right there. I wish I could laugh like that. Um, This one's easy. Send your parents to voicemail. No, I'm just kidding. Um, His his parents send his his parents parents to voicemail, which does add a little layer to it. Cultural clashes, and yeah, so I'm assuming his parents, like mine, are old school, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lot of shoulds, and, um, you know, uh, I think my parents early on, their dream was for me to date a, a Korean, you know, marry a Korean woman, and uh, and everything that comes with that, and uh, by high school, we were, you know, bringing home um, Caucasian girls, and that never stopped, and eventually, um, as you draw boundaries, they're not going to disown you. They're not going to change. And and I think with her, her, I think her job is to express to her husband or boyfriend mm-hmm. um, how the situation and, and his family is making her feel. And then this is what's going to be tough is her Korean um, partner has to support um, also but not get in the way, um, has to maneuver this in a way where she feels safe, mm-hmm. not controlled or pushed aside. I think a lot of um uh, uh, pe- uh men in this situation um can take the parents side especially if um that pool is very strong and then uh the wife feels very alone mm-hmm. you know and so i think that's the danger in this if she feels supported and they as a couple say listen we got to draw some boundaries with you know my korean mom or she nags or whatever is happening 
um, it's going to make their relationship closer. Mm -hmm. So this is actually a great exercise for her to connect to her husband or boyfriend instead of feeling less alone. Yeah, and, alone. and I think to your point, it's it's going to actually be her expressing it to him, but it's going to be how he shows up in support of her, right? And, and not to minimize how hard that will probably be for him because this will probably, it sounds like, be one of the first experiences of differentiation he's had from his parents. And so I imagine there will be a lot of struggle with that, but that's going to be information for her, right? Like you have created this new family. He has decided to be a part of this new family. It's not to necessarily take sides, but it is to set boundaries and say, I'm an adult. This is what I choose. You need to respect it. Um, and whether or not he's able to do that is going to be information for Th her. This is a great catalyst opportunity exercise for him more than for her. Yeah, agreed. You know, I think it's going to be telling. <laughs> Which is tough because she can't control that. Yeah. yeah, you know, but it's going to be telling on uh, where he's at. Mm-hmm. Alabama Elise from Facebook has a question for us. What are the phases we go through when getting to know someone? And how do we avoid moving too fast if there's a strong chemistry between us? Can we talk a bit about attachment styles? Because I think this might be yeah. the one area where we disagree. Mm. Mm. And it's mainly, although I probably agree with the essence of what we're talking about here. But to me, as soon as I began to wake up in my right around age 39 or 40, I understood all of the problems with attachment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and attachment being the main roadblock toward love for me because mm -hmm. I was really attaching myself not to just to a person, although I've attached myself to plenty of people, but also a particular outcome with that person. Yeah. And it strikes back to a question earlier that we were talking about uh, being attracted to, to someone, but then we also are attracted to this ideal version of someone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not, I'm not attracted to my wife. I'm attracted to my wife if she does these 14 mm -hmm. things in this sequence yep. and continues to do them. And oh, by the way, as soon as she meets those, I'll heap on three more expectations. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I'm never happy now with the, the relationship. Yes. And then it gets back to those three words that you ended that beautiful reading with. We want out. Mm -hmm. And we <laughs> tend to want out because of, well, be, because of these attachments that we've we've tethered mm -hmm. our our happiness to mm. oh i guess i could say so much about this i mean this is this idea that we have decided that our partners are just these need meeting machines that they need to do all of these things to meet our needs and if they're not meeting their needs it's them and something's wrong with the relationship right rather than owning I have needs and many of those needs are actually my responsibility to meet. And I can have honest conversation with my partner, obviously about my needs, but the expectations feel a little bit different to me than necessarily attachment only when we're talking about attachment as attachment like theory, right? Yeah. So I, I kind of want to say, let's separate out the idea of expectation from attachment. Now, attachment to outcome to me is an expectation, sure. right? Attachment and attachment theory feels a little bit different. And so I, I'm going to quote um, Gabor Mate. So he talks about how every single human that comes into this onto this plane has two needs, the need for attachment and the need for autonomy, okay? The thing is, is that at the end of the day, attachment will win out, because attachment is what we need to survive. So as a baby, we have to attach to our primary caregivers in order to survive, right? So what do I do? I learn how to mold myself into what they like and they need to please them because I need that positive regard. I need that kind of um, joyful connection, that love, right? So we learn these things very early on. I do still need autonomy. Those two things will transfer into adulthood. But at the end of the day, attachment, I have learned I can die without it. Right. And so without really examining where, why, how those attachment patterns start to form, 
unconsciously, I'm going to revert back to attachment being the primary thing that motivates me in relationship Mm -hmm. because it's attached to survival. Now it's not as an adult. If I don't meet John's attachment needs, right? I'm not going to die. He's not going to die. But very unconsciously at a very deep level, I believe that I will unless I've done the examining and I can call that out for what it is. Right. So I just want to, I want to say like, I do think we need to say attachment and expectation might be a little bit different, at least in this context. And yet it's possible to transcend that type of attachment as well. When you start to understand it for what it is. And in fact, teenagers begin to understand this because that's when they become unattached or they actually try to detach, which is different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's, you've had this need, this attachment because you are literally Mm -hmm. surviving Mm -hmm based on your attachment to your parents. But at some point, you're able to survive on your own. And then you always do the thumbing your nose thing mm-hmm. at Which the is parents. the autonomy. Yes. That's where autonomy comes into play, usually as an adolescence. Yes. And yet, as we become adults, now we pick up these new attachments. We think right. they're going to help us survive. Right. But they actually get in the way of our freedom. Yeah. And, and you know, examples are the white picket fence, the mm-hmm. big house, mm-hmm. the nice car, the car loan, the you know $1,000 suits or whatever they are, mm-hmm. right? All of nothing inherently wrong with these things. But if we think this is what makes, makes me, me, me right. who I am, this is my identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, our second book, Everything That Remains, the first line of it is our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. Mm-hmm. The and quite often we try to adorn ourselves with literal costumes, a mm-hmm. suit, or I'm this type of person, or this type of car, this type of house, because we're afraid of what's going on in here. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, is that why you wear black, by the way? It's just simple. Just it's very slim. Yeah, yeah, like like neutral. Yeah, there's no costume to it. Yeah. It's the donuts. Um, <laughs> attachment styles, not in the sense of Buddhism and getting hooked, but in wiring due to how we were raised and how that affects relationships. So I'm avoidantly attached. She's. Uh, I'm anxiously attached. I was like, wait a second. Are you? No. <laughs> this I'm is new a, news to me. <laughs> I'm anxiously attached. She's uh, uh, more on the avoidant well, side. Dips into it. Yeah. Dip into it. And of course, we've done a lot of work. So every, everyone's, everyone's trying to swim towards secure. Um, but me being anxious uh, comes out in me wanting to hold her leg or she needs to tell me five times a day that she's attracted to me, right? Having that sense of you know, needing that her avoidant is when I do that, she runs the other way. Mm-hmm. Right. So just being aware of our default, where it comes from. And then the work is like you said, now that I'm aware of this, mm-hmm. what does it look like to sit with it or whatever it needs for you to run the other way. And so you're more securely attached. Mm-hmm. What are these different attachment styles? Can we, for our listeners, there's can a we bunch of them, but we just go through well, three. There's, yeah. there's four that are the primary, right? So there's secure, which is really the one everybody wants to move towards. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Then we've got avoidant, we've got anxious and we've got anxiously. Oh my God. I just blanked out. Disorganized, disorganized. Sorry. So those are the four. I was like, I'm a therapist. I swear. <laughs> and then there's disorganized attachment. So Uh, within an anxious attachment, it is the kind of constant desire and need for that external sense of like, I am okay. I am here. I am needed. I am necessary. And so we're constantly seeking that external, right? That's what soothes my anxiety. Okay. Which is what this idea all is based on. Um, avoidance is really too much closeness actually makes like my sense of self gets snuffed out by too much closeness. And so in order to protect against that, I put up that wall, I back up, I, you know, that's the avoiding. And then disorganized usually comes to play when there's a little bit of both. And usually disorganized is really traced to 
real trauma, like rooted in severe trauma and upbringing. Parents who are completely incapable of meeting your attachment needs for a variety of reasons will tend to see people fall and disorganized. Secure, the, the percentage of secure is actually really low only because we do tend to swing. So we can actually show up differently in different relationships. Mm-hmm. I've been in relationships with people who are more avoidant and I tend to be a little bit more anxious, right? And so it does tend to be like what you trigger in me, I respond in kind. The reason why we talk about it in the book is because we have seen so often in our clients this idea of opposites attract. His anxious triggers in me my avoidance. That's It makes sense to us that unconsciously we would be drawn to each other because that's just another layer of healing that we actually need to do. And he's providing me with and I am providing him with an opportunity to heal those wounds if we look at it that way. Yeah, and her avoiding puts a black light on my anxious. Right. Hmm. You could either look at it and say, okay, here's the prescription, or you could not look at it and uh, date the same person and relationships keep going the same way. And just be activated all of the time. The the other thing that I I like to point out to people, especially to Elise here on Facebook, is that I've identified this sort of three-legged table, almost like the holy trinity of a relationship. It involves compatibility. We wrote about this in Love People Use Things. Compatibility, chemistry, which as Mm -hmm. you illuminate in your book, chemistry isn't always what we think it is, right? right, right. Yeah. And then love. Love is simultaneously the most difficult and the easiest piece because if you truly love someone, you see them for who they are without trying to change them. You may not like everything about a person, but it's possible to love the entire person. Chemistry is also easy as well. And, and I'm attracted to this right. person. Mm-hmm. We have that chemistry together. It doesn't always have to be sexual either. I, I right. think about TK, Ryan, and I have particular chemistry on the podcast. Right. Uh, but the most difficult piece is the compatibility piece yeah. mm-hmm. because we get that chemistry. I feel like, oh, this is red hot, right? And not realizing I'm actually just on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can love someone as well. I can see them. But then if we're not compatible, what do I try to do? I unlove them by trying to change them, yes. drag them to my point of view, right? And now I develop a, a different kind of attachment. It sounds to me like what you're talking about with secure attachment, that is a state of non-attachment in some mm-hmm. respect. Right. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it really is this idea that um, I am my own autonomous being. You are your own autonomous being. I respect you for who you are. I am able to have space, healthy space and boundaries without it feeling like I'm I'm not setting walls. And I'm also able to respond to your, you know, um, bids for secure attachment, your bids for just attachment, I guess I would say closeness without it feeling like it's overwhelming me. It's this being able to kind of balance between um and knowing that i'm okay without you yes yeah and and not only am i okay without you you don't complete me yes you can amplify my life you can enhance my experience of life yes Mm -hmm. exactly and how beautiful is that but as soon as i need you Mm -hmm. i need the relationship it really taints it tk can you bring us home for elise here sean just gave me the the cue to to, i need to hurry up wrap it up yeah it sounds so (laughs) scary doesn't it to say Mm -hmm. i I can be fine without you and I don't need you, yeah. but there yeah. is no more of a powerful place than that to love someone from. Because when, when you aren't afraid of them, mm. you know, when, when you don't feel needy, you can actually love them more fully and more mm. freely. So okay. that's pretty cool. You know, I, one thing I, I just say, at least wrapping this up is um, the, the right pace is determined by the people, not the other way around. Mm. And, you know, you hear people flippantly say things like, uh, you're too silly, you're too serious, you talk too much, you're too this. And too just means someone else is getting a little too much of what they want 
and they're projecting that onto you. You talk too much means I just don't want to listen anymore. Mm. You're too serious means I just need a little bit more levity. You know, you're too silly means I just need a little bit more seriousness. But that says nothing about how you need to be in order to be the best version of you. And mm. so in your relationship, what determines the right pace is what works for you. I wouldn't go looking for an external rule that says, here's how we're moving too fast or here's how we're moving too slow. Is it on? And if it's on for the both of you and it makes you come alive, roll with it. And communicate. Over-communicate. She was saying, how do I know it's going too fast? Just talk about it. Damn, people, communicate, right? (laughs) Like so many times it's like, should I, shouldn't I? Should I say this? Should I not? It's five dates. Should we have sex yet? Is that too soon? Why aren't we talking to each other? Like, yeah. just ask, mm-hmm. right? And we can do that without vomiting on them right. also. Right. Easier said right. than done. And, and, yeah. and so, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's trying to figure out what, what that balance is. Sometimes we'll go a little bit too far in that communication. Mm-hmm. And the other person, it's also their role to tell us when we are making them uncomfortable via right. our communication. Right. Another question from Facebook. Samantha has something for us. We are told that in order to love others, we must first love ourselves. Does this mean a relationship will fail if you don't love yourself more than your partner? Samantha, it is impossible to love someone if you don't first love yourself. But in our culture, I think we misunderstand love. And we've been alluding to that today on the podcast where we think love is like just extreme like. Mm -hmm. Oh, I really, 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 really like this person. I must therefore love them. Mm. Well, no, those are two completely different things. To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them, manipulate them, persuade them, coerce them into my worldview, right? But seeing them, noticing them, that is when I love someone. And so, unfortunately, if we don't love ourselves, we don't see ourselves for who we are, accept ourselves for who we are, what happens? We don't have the capacity to see others either. I, I say um, um, forget love yourself because it's become such a bumper sticker and now it kind of means nothing. Yes. Uh, for me, at 35, starting o- all over, um, I asked myself, what does it, like, what does it look, like, look like to like myself? Mm-hmm. You know, that's where I started because that requires a journey. You have to earn that, right? Like you could love people in your family who you don't really like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. you have to love and that is a choice, right? Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard, but you can't... Um, force yourself to like someone. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, you either like someone or you don't, right? Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to yourself, A, it's a lifelong journey. So it's not about self-love. It's being on the journey of your relationship with yourself by liking, accepting, you know, sharing your gifts. Everything that you do with someone else, doing it with you, that's what you bring to the table, you know? Yeah, and I would say too that the process of learning to like yourself and thus maybe learning to love yourself is usually a process that we do in tandem with other people. So yeah. a lot of people out there will say like, oh, you should stay single, stay, stay single until you learn to love yourself, right? It's like mm. love yourself before you can love other people. That's cool, but you can do that while also being partnered. That's right. Right, yeah. and actually that usually is the only way to start doing that because I can read as many self-help books as I want. I can go on all of the retreats and the journeys and the spiritual whatevers that I want. But we are relational creatures. We see ourselves in the mirror of other people. So developing a sense of love for myself actually mostly comes through my reflection of self. That's very normal. That's who we are as humans. So I would say don't allow that belief to be the hindrance to getting in relationship. Allow that relationship to be just a mirror for you to fall more in love with yourself, which is a lifelong journey. 
Yes, this is why I, I hate the advice that people give to singles, mm-hmm. which is, you want your dream lover? Well, you need to make a list of all the qualities that would make you worthy of that dream lover mm. and then become that first. <laughs> first yeah. of all, you're not going to become that. You're never going to become that. <laughs> you're never going to become that. You're always going to be in the process of becoming that. And also, have you ever spoken to anyone that's in relationship? We're always discovering new mm. things. Right. We're always right. evolving. And so that that's the great hope, at least. Right. Well, right. Th- that's the great, the great hope. hope. Otherwise, great it hope. dies. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and, so, and so just piggybacking on what you all said, I, I would say that self-love is not a prerequisite for relationship. It's a process that you practice through the relationship. Yes. It's beautifully put. Alabama, let's check back in with the Patreon live stream. Do you have any questions or comments for us? I have a comment from Rachel. She said, my husband cheated on me and I suffered deeply for years afterward. Mm. I was only able to begin my healing process once I stopped blaming him and victimizing myself. It was so liberating to shift my perspective on what our relationship was. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, Thank Thank you you so much. The, uh, The first line originally of our last book, Love People Use Things, was... uh, I cheated on my wife the day after my mother died of cancer mm. and um, it was my, my first wife. And I realized, you know, that a, an event like that, you know, to cheat on someone doesn't happen like accidentally. And it's not like, mm-hmm. oh, I made one mistake. And I, we, we really, um, we try to abdicate our own responsibility by saying, um, I made a mistake as opposed to like, oh no, it was not just one mistake. It wasn't even just one bad decision. It becomes a series of bad right. decisions, mm-hmm. right? And part of that has to do with expectations, right? Because you can be in an open relationship. You can take cheating off the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I talk about this on her podcast. It's called How to Love. And uh, we took cheating off the table at the beginning of our relationship. I said, hey, mm-hmm. if you want to be with someone else, then mm-hmm. great. It's you know, it's a semi-open relationship in that way where it's like, hey, if, if you feel that desire to be with someone else, let's just be open Talk and honest about it. About it. Let's mm-hmm. not shut that down. I don't own you. You don't own me. And uh, I would prefer if we have a conversation as opposed to lying. Secrecy. Yeah. Misleading mm-hmm. secrecy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It becomes uh, that becomes a, a prison. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden the partner in our relationship becomes our adversary. Well, what's funny about that is that at least for, I'm going to speak from the more avoidant nature here. When somebody leaves the door open, yeah. I feel more comfortable staying inside. Ooh. When somebody, that cl- podcast, when, close, when somebody closes that door and says, you can't, I own you. It makes me want to do it more. Yes. That's first of all, is more human nature, but I also would say as an avoidant, it's a little bit more like me, like don't close the cage. I want to know that I can fly if I want to fly. Now you can relate that not just to cheating, right? That can be anything. But again, going back to like our looking at relationships, like they're transactional. This is where so much of the love dies. It gets snuffed out by this ownership that we think we're owed something by somebody because they are mine. Oh, you know, it's funny because uh, me being anxiously attached, um, I want the doors and windows closed and I, then I get the boner. <laughs> and then you get... <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I can't get wood if the doors are open. Well, the irony of that... Because she might leave. But you, but you want her doors closed and it's okay whether right, yours right, are right. open or yeah, closed. Yeah. No, it doesn't mine should matter. be open. Her door should be closed. Right. <laughs> oh, she shouldn't even have doors. We have a conversation. There should be a cylinder. There should not be doors. Or <laughs> On the way home, we'll be talking about this. In the car. Um, no, no, but... We're going to talk it, about this. Yeah. We're going to talk about this later. Well, I, I, I'm aware of that 
pool, I don't yeah. behave that way in our relationship right. or else you wouldn't be with me. Um, but just being aware of that, normalizing, oh, this is where it comes from. And it's really interesting. I've never heard semi-open. So mm-hmm. does that mean that a conversation is required and that's what makes it semi? Yeah, that, Dan that, Savage calls it monogamish, mm-hmm. right? Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I've never and, heard that term. And, and so, you know, we are, you know, and by the way, I, I believe that all relationships are monogamous just on a short enough timeline, right? Mm-hmm. Like, sure. Mm-hmm. You could be in a threesome and have a monogamous moment with the other. <laughs> and, and <laughs> right, like, right, right. It, but it's weird because we always talk about monogamous relationships, but unless you've been with one person your entire life, then you're not in a monogamous, re- you're in a, in a series, series of monogamous, of monogamous relationships. Right, right. right. And so you, if, if you just pan out a little bit, mm-hmm. you realize like, it's all ultimately an open relationship. What are we saying? There's no overlap in our relationship. Yeah. And then it starts to get weird. I'm not allowed to talk to other people as well. And, yeah. and so that yeah. gets back to the ownership piece of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so so the term that Dan Savage coined you know, many, many years ago was monogamish. And I felt that that... Uh, what it really talks about is having an openness, not just to an open relationship, an openness to the other person to realize that I don't complete you. Mm-hmm. You don't complete me. You're going to get your needs met, sexual, emotional, psychological from other people potentially, mm-hmm. because I can't meet every need that you're going to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a weird sort of, um, um, if I'm trying to meet every need of that person, not only am I going to constantly disappoint them, right, yes. but I'm going to disappoint myself. Yeah, Esther Perel talks a lot about that, right? That yeah. we've we've this culture, and actually she talks about our obsession with attachment as a culture. And she talks about it as an American thing, not necessarily like just a Western thing. Our obsession with attachment as like attachment-based relationship has actually created this like, you need to meet all of my needs. The expectation that this like, um, this romantic partnership should be everything. You got to be my best friend. You got to be my confidant. You got to be my work partner. You got to be my romantic part, all of these things. And that we don't have a village anymore, right? When we lived in a more of a village, you know, communal, 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 (laughs) what am I saying? communal yeah. uh, <laughs> environment, we didn't expect that, right? And that's actually, again, snuffing out the relationship because that's insane to expect one person mm. to yeah. be able to complete and meet every need that you have. It's yeah. just not sustainable. That's right. Yeah. And it, it's insane too to expect it of ourselves. Right. And to I, and do I, the same for them. Yeah, that's yes. right. Yes. And, and I suspect that's why um, cheating often hurts because it's not just about the breaking of a promise. It's also the dispelling of an illusion. Like, mm, you mean you were attracted to someone else? You were capable of being turned on yeah. by someone other than me? What does that mean but, about me? Yeah, what does that say about yeah. me? It says I'm a human being mm. who's limited, who is inadequate in his ability to meet all of your needs. Mm-hmm. And that's the humbling part when a person goes through that because we put that pressure on ourselves that we got to be everything. The mm-hmm. only attractive person, the only funny person, the only good looking person. Mm. Yeah. And it, you start to realize I'm not enough for you, my yes. partner. Right. But that's okay because I'm enough for me. And, and that's where we get confused. Mm-hmm. The, the meme of you complete me presupposes that I'm not enough for me right. and thus must be completed. I am incomplete. I'm born incomplete, which is so absurd. When you mm-hmm. look at a baby, you never say, look at that incomplete baby. Only when they find a romantic partner will they finally be complete. Yes, yes. right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that baby needs to improve their life. Yeah. It's like, well, no, that's insane. Yeah. I, in fact, if you mm-hmm. came to me and said, my, my nine-year-old daughter, well, she really needs to improve as a mm-hmm. human. I'd be like, get the hell away from me. That's right. so strange. But as soon as we become adults and we, we start looking for partners, as we look for someone to complete us, not realizing that, look... You are already enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I Amen. think um, the models are so baked into us mm-hmm. 
what you're saying, I think most people, I mean, they can't argue with that. It's like logically you get it, Yes, but to actually be it, live it, Mm -hmm. love in that way is so hard. Yeah, and it's moving toward that secure Mm -hmm. attachment. I would refer to a secure non-attachment. Right, yes, yes, yes. Malabama, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round. Yes, indeed. You can text your questions and comments to 937-202-4654. We answer them throughout the week via our phones, but we answer some here on the podcast. Now, during the lightning round, here's what we do. We and our guests, we try to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response, but not really. You can ramble a little bit. I was like, oh. Professor Sean gives you 60 <laughs> seconds on the clock and you can answer this question within 60 seconds. And we try to tweeze out something pithy. We call them minimal maxims mm. and uh, podcast Sean puts them in the show notes so people can share our pithy answers on social media if they like. It looks like Casey has a question for us. I have absolutely found my person, but we're not sure if we want to get legally married. What are the pros and cons of legal marriage? Let's put 60 seconds on the clock for T.K. Coleman. What do you got for us, T.K.? Something pithy? Completely unprepped, but let's do it. (laughs) Contracts are for lawyers. Creativity is for lovers. Uh, I quote the economist Thomas Sowell, who said, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And how do you determine what trade-offs are right for you? You look within at your own preferences your own principles, your own priorities. I call those the three Ps and they will take you everywhere you need to go. You can't make good decisions in life by academically writing down the pros and cons on a sheet of paper because those pros and cons have to be contextualized by what matters most to you. And that has to come from within. What are your preferences? What are your principles? What are your priorities? That'll let you know the trade-offs that you need to make. We got 60 seconds on the clock for... He's going with your answer. Can I just say... (laughs) For John Kim. (laughs) Uh, we put too much weight on the promise. Why do you want to get married? Why is that valuable to you? I would say hold this instead of a grab it and ask yourself what holding it looks like. Like feeding birds. If you are uh, holding, meaning with an open hand and let the bird come to you, that's going to build legs of a relationship. If you're chasing after the bird to feed it, you're going to chase it away. So if you're using marriage to chase instead of hold, I don't think it's a good thing. Mm. And what I like about your answer here is you're not saying marriage is good or bad, Mm -hmm. but it is not always the goal. My wife and I aren't married on paper, Mm. but I refer to as my wife because culturally people Mm. understand that, right? In fact, we live apart half the time as well, which is also a weird cultural Mm. thing. People Mm -hmm. are like, oh my God, we were having dinner with someone one time. I'm still using his 60 seconds here. (laughs) And I say, oh yeah, we live apart half the time. And someone said, no, don't do that. What are you talking about? No, I do do that. I'm going to do that because I've realized the distance is what creates the desire in our... Ah! (laughs) I got the buzzer. All right. We got 60 (laughs) seconds on the clock for Vanessa Bennett. God, I don't have anything pithy to say after these two. I feel like they said it all. But uh, as somebody who myself, similar, not married, but live together, have a child, own a home, all the things... I mean, the perks are probably tax cuts, I guess. (laughs) But again, what's your should and why is there a should and where does this should come from, right? Like who is telling you that this is what your life should look like? And then you need to question that. This is a radical departure from what we've been told. I think generationally, we're finally breaking out of, we have to do things a certain way. And so I think marriage is just one of those. Having children is another one of those. Um, Ask yourself where that should is coming from. Is it coming from you or is it coming from external? And you and your partner just need to be kind of on the same page about it. Yes, indeed. There are no shoulds. There are only coulds. And as soon as we realize that, it opens up all of the possibilities. You want to put 60 seconds up there for me? 
since TK stole my pithy answer and <laughs> reworded it, <laughs> I actually stole this one and reworded something from our friend Seth Godin. Ooh. So contracts inform us about the past. Handshakes inform us about the future. So my wife and I don't have a specific contract with respect to our marriage. But if you look at famous marriages from the past, there are plenty of people who have been together you know, and weren't married by the state mm. because it's not about, well, as soon as I have this contract, the contract says, oh, I've been screwed over in the past and I don't want you to screw me over mm. again. And so we're going to sign this contract, mm -hmm. TK. And what's fascinating is I don't have contracts with anyone we work with here, right? In fact, Matt Diavella, who directed our first two films, we, I don't have a contract with mm. them. We had a handshake agreement wow. every time. That's amazing. And the reason, and if, in fact, even we work with Netflix, they sent me this like 80 page contract. I said, can you get this on two pages? Mm. And they're like, what? No one's ever asked <laughs> us. The lawyer's this. head's exploded. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, I, I don't want to sign something I don't understand. Let's have a handshake so we can work together going forward. That's 60 seconds. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> and, 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 skin and, and, like a true alpha. He was like, not only did you steal my, <laughs> steal my tweet, I'm going to take it back, slam dunk it before the shot clock's over. That's a boss right there. Big thanks to John Kim and Vanessa Bennett. Check out their book. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's not me, it's you. Break the blame cycle, relationship better. Thank you so much for joining us yeah, today. Thank you for having thank us. You, all for having us. you can check out their awesome. podcast as well. It, the Angry Therapist podcast and cheaper than therapy. Oh, good memory. <laughs> we'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. Malabam, what else you got for us before we get to our simple loving segments? And also, we're going to do another home tour segment coming up. What do you got for us in the meantime? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, my name is Kelly. I've actually been binge listening to some of your episodes on my long commute to work and had a couple of low cost solutions uh, based on your episodes on school and food. Uh, so for people who are considering going to college or graduate school and aren't sure if it's right for them, there is actually an online company called Coursera. They offer um, courses, and for some of them, you can actually earn a certification. Uh, they offer online courses that are offered um, by universities and taught by uh, university professors in all different kinds of topics. Right now, I'm actually taking the content management course through Northwestern University, and the subscription to do this is uh, $50 a month. So you can take the courses at your own pace, finish at your own pace, and at the end, if you decide to finish, you get a certificate. Um, if you don't decide to finish, you can unsubscribe. So it's a low-cost way to kind of dabble in higher education if you're trying to figure out if school is something that you're interested in. And since they offer classes on all kinds of topics, you can also dabble in um, different areas or majors to see where your interest may lie. In regards to the food episode, I know there are some people express concerns about wanting to eat organic, uh, but the cost was uh, a deterrent for them. There's actually a new company called Imperfect Produce. And what they do is they offer um, organic and or non-organic options for um, delivery, actually. They take the produce that otherwise would have been sent to a landfill or not um, bought by grocery stores just because the produce might be a little large, it might be a little small, it might not look what we call perfect. Um, and 
those are often the uh, groceries that are overlooked at the grocery store. Um, so what they do is they take that produce and they actually sell it. You can customize your box online and decide what you want, whether it's every week or every other week, and the box actually shows up at your door. It's uh, a company that's growing. So they don't offer for all cities, but they're slowly expanding. It's very inexpensive and you get organic produce um, delivered straight to you for a cost that would be much lower than buying it at say Whole Foods or a, a grocery store that has expensive items. Hi guys, uh, my name is Maria. I'm from Moscow, Russia. Uh, I have a bipolar disorder and most of the time I don't have a lot of energy, so stuff uh, kind of piles up. Um, whenever I do have it, I start decluttering and I don't just get rid of things I don't need or like or haven't used in a while. I also ask myself, does this thing makes me feel better about myself or worse? For example, I'm good at cooking and since I have to eat, uh, I cook once a week or so, but mostly I live on takeouts and orderings. Um, and even though I always order healthy food and have a pretty good eating habits, I still feel guilty about not having home-cooked meals. I never wanted to cook in the first place, but having all those cooking stuff and not using it puts stress on me. It's... Uh, three times a day struggle. So last month I said to myself, okay, I don't want to worry about that anymore. It makes me like myself less. So I got rid of most of my kitchenware and kept only a few things essential to making eggs and coffee. I um, instantly felt better without all those pans and pots staring at me every time I enter my kitchen. Um, I don't have that stress anymore. And while I don't recommend that particular kind of cleanup, I will definitely say to anyone with bipolar or depression that having only things that you like to use or just look at will make you feel so much better. I know that most of us think one day uh, I'll get better and I finish that book or DIY project, but sometimes not doing that is what makes you closer to getting better. So throw it out, find it in your home. You don't want stuff dragging you down. Welcome back to The Minimalists. I'm here with Malabama, TK Coleman. And we just had John and Vanessa here. They wrote this amazing book. It's not me, it's you. We were talking to the live stream during the break, TK. And you were saying what you loved about the book is it's about breaking the blame cycle. And people often get really upset at me when I say, it is not my job to unoffend you because I do not have the power to offend you. And people have a weird knee-jerk reaction to that. They will often say, oh, so it's okay to be racist and sexist then? As though that's what I'm saying. Yeah, please be more racist and be more sexist. Of course not. Or, oh, so it's just okay for everyone to be, go around being a jerk? No, I want people to be kind. TK, I can't force you to be kind. In fact, if I do force you to be kind, hold a gun to your head and say, be kind, damn it. Is that actual kindness? No. no. You can put on a nice smile, but that's not being kind to me. So I can't control the way that you act, but I can control the way that I react by seeing my own offense, my own anger, my own 
disappointment in you, right? Yeah. Because those are my own reactions and I can, I can control those and not blame you for the way that I feel. Yeah. And, and it doesn't mean you have to abandon your values. It doesn't mean you have to be dishonest about your preferences or that you have to overlook the fact that there are some things that happen in life that you simply don't like. It, it's similar to the knee-jerk reaction we often have to messages about personal responsibility. If I say, I am responsible for everything that happens in my life, or you are responsible for everything that happens in your life, it doesn't mean you're a freaking jerk who is to blame for everything that anyone does that you don't like, right? Personal responsibility and self-blame don't have to be equated. But we have these, we have these uh, ideas that we bring together as if they're necessary. And so we say, well, if I believe that, then I also must accept that. But it's possible to say, hey, responsibility doesn't equal blame. It just means that I have the power to do something about it. And, and, and that's beautiful. Yeah. That's liberating. We were talking about Alan Watts and how Alan talks about how ultimately it's all okay. We're just a blip. But it doesn't mean because of that, it excuses my bad behavior, my lack of compassion, my meanness toward other people. Because if I'm using that as an excuse, then I can use it to batter other people. But it's understanding that other people are going to be racist. Other people are going to be sexist. And there was one thing I loved. You did a podcast interview with one of my friends, uh, Christopher Kelly, Nourish, Balance, yeah. Thrive podcast. And I remember because he's very, very British. And also he is very direct with people. And when I first connected you, he's like, I want to talk to you about racism because I think we're all racist. <laughs> and I think the average person yeah. would have had a outraged response to that. What do you mean? Because it was presupposing that we all should be racist or whatever. What he was saying is no, from a ancestral biology perspective, maybe we evolved to have certain biases toward people of outgroups. And one way for many thousands of years to identify people of outgroups was if they looked differently from us. Yeah, I think that's far more likely to be true than the idea that no one is. It just makes sense, right? I know that so many people are tired of talking about race. And, and to those people, I'll just say this, the, the more tired you are of it, the more you're afraid of the conversation, the more likely you'll just be intersecting with people that just want to talk about nothing else. People can smell that fear and that discomfort. The, the best way to get rid of something that you don't want to be there anymore is to just get real comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. find, find a way to make your peace with it so that it doesn't intimidate you anymore. But one of the reasons why I think we're so uncomfortable with, with this idea is, is that we, we kind of and we've talked about this before in a podcast where we put race on a pedestal and racism on a pedestal and we treat it as if it's a vice unlike anything else, mm. right? And, as, you know, so for instance, if I were to say, hey, is greed a problem today? I mean, of course, right? We, we don't have to believe that it's the same level of difficulty for everyone. But yeah, greed is a problem today. Is lust an issue today? Is theft a problem today? At, at what point did the human race evolve beyond having challenges and difficulties related to any of these things. At no point is jealousy a problem today. Yeah. But if you say is, if is racism a problem today, you're going to get a really heated debate that you literally won't get over any other vice. You'll have people who believe that for some strange reason, 
human beings are so superficial that they hate each other over weight, over money, over basketball teams. But when it comes to skin color or ideas about ethnicity, this is the one thing that we got right. <laughs> you know, like this is the one thing that we don't hate each other over. And so we're just so precious about it. We're just so afraid of it. And this brings us back to kind of what you were saying earlier. It's because we've lost our ability to analyze ideas because we equate ideas with their perceived implications. And rather than reacting to ideas themselves, we react to the implication we have become attached to. An implication involves, what do I think it will say about me to be the kind of person who accepts that idea? You know, so there's an idea that says, hey, you don't have the power to offend me. Okay, I like that idea. It's liberating. But what will it say about me if I allow myself to be seen as someone who believes in that? Will that make me a conservative or a liberal? Mm. I got to check with that first because I don't want anybody seeing me as progressive or I don't want anybody seeing me as conservative. I don't want anybody seeing me as racist or closed-minded. So rather than analyze the idea in terms of how much freedom it brings to my life, let me check to make sure that it doesn't make me look like a certain type of person. What am I allowed to say in order to get your acceptance? And that becomes a prison because now I'm trying to appease everyone and I'm not going to get everyone's acceptance. So then it becomes hypocritical speak. I, I need to be able to say this thing to appease this group. I need to say this thing to appease this group. And those two things might be in conflict with each other. So I'm going to say this thing in this room real quietly. I'm going to go over to this room. Yeah, yeah. And then you're, as soon as you get exposed for that, that's what people dislike the most is this lack of congruency between the way you move here and the way that you move here. Yeah. Continuing our Talk Aboutables segment, that's where we are right now on the private podcast. I wanted to talk to you, TK, about, I noticed this recently. So my daughter, we began unschooling her this year. She goes to an unschooling school, which I know you are certainly in favor of. And so it's sort of the best of both worlds for us. I was just talking to her yesterday because she starts school unschool next week, right? And she has always struggled in school through the traditional system, the sit at a desk with 30 other kids, raise your hand, be quiet, shut up, and uh, do these math problems, do your homework, etc. And I think that ultimately, we've always all hated school for the most part. No one's been really looking forward to school very rarely. I remember like end of summer coming around, we all were dreading what? going back to school. And so I was talking to Ella about this yesterday. She's up in Montana right now with her biological father. And she, we were talking, what, what are you most excited about coming back to California? She's like, I really want to go to unschool. Oh, I love that. Because now she realizes that the structures that were oppressive to her before are removed. And that part of her life, instead of it being rigid. It's wiggly. It has room for play, for enjoyment, mm. for exploration. Mm. And this is the first year we haven't done what? We haven't gone back to school supply shopping. Mm. What a weird, there's this back to school supply industrial complex that marketers use to sell us hundreds of dollars worth of, worth of things each August. Things that 
we're supposed to have. You have to have this kind of folder, this kind of pin, this kind of trapper keeper, this kind of backpack, this kind of lunchbox, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those shoulds we get excited about in the moment. But then we realize like, oh, wait a minute. I don't have to have any of these things. We didn't buy her a single thing this year. And she's not deprived. That's the story that we tell ourselves. If you don't buy these things for your children, they will be deprived. They will be missing out. They are not already enough. They need these things to complete their school experience. That's not what learning is about. You don't need accoutrements to learn. In my writing class, How to Write Better, I talk about how even if I gave you Jimi Hendrix's guitar, you're not going to play the guitar like Jimi Hendrix. Mm. It's not about the instrument that makes you a great human being or a great artist that makes you enough. No, those things can amplify what you're doing, but it's much less about the supplies, the instruments, than it is, is about immersing yourself now in the moment. Yeah, and we don't just do this with things. We do it with experiences as well. So we say things like, hey, your kid's going to turn out really weird. If you don't send them over to the school where all the other kids are there who are the same age as your child, you don't want your kid to be weird now, do you? Well, when I look at who succeeds and who seems to be happiest in the adult world, I find a lot of room for questioning that. There, there seems to be a value to weirdness that, that, comes, that comes into fruition when our lives are no longer orchestrated around being easy for our teachers and parents to manage, mm. right? Weirdness is very difficult when other people have to manage you early on in your life. But the moment you get to that place where you've got some autonomy and some independence, it turns out that weirdness has a lot of value economically, relationally, spiritually, and so on. But not only that, there's some room to question this idea that school teaches you how to be socially healthy. I mean, there are two different kinds of networks. There are horizontal networks and vertical networks. Vertical networks, age goes straight down. Horizontal, age goes sideways. Schools are based on horizontal networks. If you're in seventh grade, you spend most of your time around other seventh graders, right? We segregate people by age. There is literally only one environment in the world where that's how social life works. It's school. Mm. School teaches you how to socialize at school. It teaches you how to be comfortable, how to be good at what you do, and how to be authentic around people who are your age. In the real world, the richest kind of life is one where you interact with people and where you make friends, not based on age, but, but, but based on common principles, common affinities, common interests, and lifestyles. And so in the real world, you're 25 and you've got some friends in their 40s, and that's not weird to you. You've got some friends that are 18 and 19, and that's not weird to you because you're social. You're socially healthy, right? Mm -hmm. And people who grow up unschooled or homeschooled often get a diverse range of social interaction that you simply don't get by being in school. Now, that's not me saying, hey, if you're in school, you know, um, something's wrong with you. But it's we, we only question one side of things because that's the status quo bias that's at work, right? If, if something is new, we tend to analyze it rigorously. If something's been around for a long time, well, we're very tolerant of the devil that we know. 
One other quick thing about this topic, you mentioned uh, Wiggly. I love your use of that Wiggly, the Wiggly lines. And, and, and you triggered me and made me think about the concept of walking in a straight line, which is just like a good example of, of something um, with how kids are affected by school. So if you think about the origins of walking in a straight line, which is a measurement for good behavior in certain contexts, what is it about walking in a straight line that's good? Well, there's nothing intrinsic. There's nothing intrinsically valuable about walking in a straight line. Most of life, when we go down a sidewalk, we don't walk in a straight line, not in some narrow, strict way. But walking in a straight line is very useful if you are an adult and you have to manage 20 different children. If they're all over the place, it's going to be hard to lead them from point A to point B. So it's very useful to give people the instruction, walk in a straight line. Okay, now I can see you all and I can guide you from point A to point B. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a teacher or a chaperone choosing to organize bodies in a way that's best for them as long as they're not causing any harm. But here's the problem. The kid who deviates from the straight line has a problem doing that or is, is terrible at it. Well, they get reprimanded for bad behavior, for unruly behavior. And now what was a conventional rule done for no other reason than to make things easier for the person transporting them from point A to point B, it becomes a behavioral problem. And this is what happens when we don't question conventions. We don't question the why behind it. We begin to internalize all sorts of negative self-judgments like, I'm not a good learner. I'm not passionate about reading. I'm not good at math. Merely because we couldn't successfully conform to the arbitrary rules of a specific environment where the rules were designed for something other than catering to the individual. And you see so many people in the world today who genuinely think that they don't like reading mm. because the love for language has been beat out of them by a system that just never taught them how to pick a book that makes their heart sing. That's exactly what happened to my daughter in school. She struggled so much with reading. Why? Because of compelled reading, compulsory reading. This summer, she's been totally lit up by reading though and the difference is what she gets to do it as opposed to she has to do it that's when school sucks i want to move on to a new rule we have but for the sake of time malabama let's save this one i have a new rule it's called the no piles rule i want to talk about because ryan will be back next week back from burning man I want to talk about my new rule, the no piles rule. It's something we've implemented in my home. So I have something else for you, though. Maybe I should hold on to it. I, these words, how many words is that? One, two, three, four, five, six. Maybe I should hold on to this. I came into this problem the other day, my wife and I. We were going through some things. We were organizing some objects we had. And we had this bowl we hadn't used. But I told myself what? Ah, maybe I should hold on to it. And this was another way to say just in case, right? The three most dangerous words that we have. But maybe I should hold on to it. Whenever I say that, whenever I think about it, maybe I should hold on to this thing. That is merely a sign that I need to question this thing. Maybe I should hold on to it. But what's the second part of that? Or maybe <laughs> I should let this go. <laughs> we have a segment on the podcast called Amass It or Trash It. I don't have an Amass It or Trash It this week, but you can send yours in to podcast at theminimalists.com. This show is run by you, the listeners. So if you have an item, are you considering amassing it, keeping it, 
trashing it, letting it go. You can donate it, sell it, you know, recycle it, whatever, or maybe even trash it. Let us know. Uh, something you're struggling with. I don't know. I want to get rid of this, but maybe I should hold on to it. Let's talk about that. So amass it or trash it. Send those in to Alabama podcast at theminimalists.com. Our next segment is called Impulse Purchases. We were calling this checkout line wisdom for a while, but I thought we should just call it what it is. Whenever we're in a checkout line, the store wants us to get one last thing. We're already there with all of our groceries or clothes or whatever it might be. But let's create, you're already in the buying frenzy, right? It's the upsell. Yes. <laughs> There's so much dopamine here. In fact, when uh, I was in the corporate world, we were selling you know, technology, cell phones, et cetera. We always called it add-ons or bolt-ons. And we had 29 different metrics by which we were measured. So if someone came in there to buy this one thing. How many add-ons, how many bolt-ons could we, could we get them to purchase? How can we engage their impulse? Jim Gaffigan, uh, sorry. Create that sense of urgency. Yeah. Jim Gaffigan uh, talks about this. He says, uh, you know, he uh, he hates Domino's because whenever he wants to order one pizza and that's all that he wants, uh, they convince him that he's wasting money if he doesn't buy three pizzas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that happened to me when I was buying shoes once. They did a, it was buy one, get one free. No, no, it was buy two, get one free, right? And so I wanted one pair of shoes. But if I bought the second pair, then I could get a third pair. But it's like, well, wait a minute. Now you're forcing me to have three pairs of shoes. But it seems like in the moment, oh, I'd be dumb not to do this. Because if those shoes are $100, that means this pair is only now, you know, if you do dollar cost averaging on this, I'm going to spend $200 for three pairs. I just saved $33, whatever the math is there on this pair of shoes. No, I didn't. I spent an extra $100 on these shoes and then got two more pairs that I probably didn't need. And so so one, one of the games now is to punish you for buying less by saying, okay, more expensive if you buy in isolation. But if you buy these two or three things together, it'll be cheaper. And it seems like they're they're giving something away, but they're making it on the back end because once you have three products instead of one, the number of accessories and add-ons that you'll need in the future will make you a more loyal, committed customer. So the game does get tricky in that way where they might try to punish you up front, quote unquote, yeah. for buying less. Oh, yeah. But of course, it's not a punishment. Living with less is a reward in and of itself. It creates the space. It creates less tension. We're going to talk about this in a bit. My photo Friday home tour number seven. There's a photo of us of some things that we purchased that have created some discontent in our lives. We'll get to that. But since we're here on this impulse purchases segment, if you're watching the video version, if you're a video subscriber on Patreon, you will see above my left shoulder this photo that Malabama found for us. She's going to read this. So this says, the things you need for your next flight. Now, TK, you've been on a lot of flights. I've been on a lot of flights. Yep. And what do I need for a flight? Well, I guess I need an airplane. I need to wear pants. They're not going to let me get on there without pants or, <laughs> or at least shorts, I suppose. I need to cover my genitalia. I uh, need to wear a shirt, but I need my driver's license, right? I need to wear shoes or flip-flops at least. There's a bare minimum, but that's what we're talking about here. They're saying, here are the things you should buy for your next flight. Give me a few of these, Malabama, that you see in the picture here. 
Turbulence is no match for this collapsible spill-proof cup. Only $25. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I I can applaud this because I don't want to be drinking from a bunch of plastic. You know, my my stance on plastic. I don't want to use a bunch of disposable cups. And so I do have my own cup that I bring around to coffee shops or other places quite often. And that prevents me from drinking out. It's not even this altruistic saving the environment thing. It's a really nice byproduct of it. But for me, it's I don't want to drink out of the the plastic that's leaching into all of our food and, and beverages. And so I can understand that. But you can get on a flight without one of those and your flight will still be fine. What's next, Malabama? There's also a hands-free vegan leather bag that lets you keep your passport and your snacks close. Only $75. What the hell is vegan leather? I don't know. It's I've like been trying pleather, to figure right? it out. I think it's different than pleather, but it's like people will use like skin from like cactuses and stuff like that. Things that are not of animals. Yeah, mm. maybe like the fashion world's version of a vegan burger, right? Yeah. It, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's it, what they're it, going it's got, for. It's got a similar texture. Okay. But it doesn't involve harming any animals. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And so the this is here's a problem with this, right? And this isn't an advertisement, but Alabama saw this somewhere. Where where were you when you saw this? I was flipping through Cosmo magazine. Oh wow. Okay. So this was in Cosmo and it's like giving you the tips. Like consume these things in order to what? Be a better traveler, be a better version of yourself when you're traveling. And what I would say is that if you have to buy something to better yourself, it's a misunderstanding of who you are. But also the consuming something, the impulse to buy this thing as though it's going to make your travel better, it may actually get in the way of your travel. I just got the sign from Professor Sean to wrap this segment up. But let's give me one more, Alabama. Speaking of things that get in the way, they have a little genius cup holder to put to-go drinks in that attaches to your luggage handle for $30. A cup holder? For to, your luggage. For your luggage. This would be useless to me because I only travel with a backpack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm going to pass on that. This is This is adding accoutrements to your travel. And I can tell you from someone who has traveled immensely, I remember when Ryan and I went on our first tour, we came up with the just-in-case rule. During that first tour, it's 2011, we own very little. But we get down to St. Petersburg, Florida. It's our first ever tour stop. Eight people showed up for it, which was awesome. Nine, or no, Ten people, if you count me and Ryan. And we had an amazing event. But I remember after we, we showed up to this uh, person's house we were staying at, we popped the trunk. And it's full of stuff. And Ryan and I packed all of these things just in case. And he looked at me, he goes, gosh, we are such hypocrites. We're supposed to be the minimalists and we carried everything we own on tr- while traveling. And we realized that all of these just in case items actually made the travel more difficult. Fast forward a few years sure. later, we did a hundred city tour, 119 events, 2014. Professor Sean actually was our tour manager that year. And we traveled with one bag each. And that was it because we realized that having more than that actually got in the way. I was gone for 10 months and everything I had, everything that I owned essentially fit in that one bag for that period of time. It was so much more freeing. And if I were to buy all these travel items that are supposed to make my travels better, they might actually get in the way and make my travels worse. That's right. But it's like the age-old question about politics. Why do politicians make so many crazy promises? And the answer is because it works. It works. 
And they sell these things because it works. And why does it work? Because, man, an impulse return is a lot harder to pull off than an impulse buy, right? Yes. You, you buy something in the airport, you get on the plane, you go across the country to do your business. And by the time you realize that you've done something silly and spent your money on something that you don't even want, you're not going to go like try to make it back to that other airport to, you know, sell it back or you're just, you're just going to move on and you're just going to carry this dead weight and it just accumulates and accumulates. And before you know it, your life feels way down and you don't even know why. And it's not because it's wrong to buy things. It's because it's self-defeating to buy stories that have nothing to do with what you really want. Speaking of that, let's move on to our advertisement suck segment, because this is the rare occasion where we have a ad that doesn't suck. Oh, and so it is a video. If you're watching the video version of this, you'll be able to see it above my left shoulder. Or if you're listening to the audio, you'll hear the advertisement. Let's go ahead and play that ad, Professor Sean. This is a cash app ad featuring Kendrick Lamar. Man, bro, so let me tell you what had went down. And I was two bands away from getting, bro, a whole barbershop, bro. Yeah. Oh, my mama, bro. Peanut gonna call my phone talking about, I just got paid. I looked at the phone. You just got paid. What? Man, where the dice at? I'm ready to shoot. We can roll. Last time I shot with him, 1300 in my pocket. Easy. Off top. Off top. Easy. So what happened? What happened? Man, peanut is what happened. Had me hot. Oh, my mama hot. Seven, 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 seven. Back to back to back to back. Bro, I was mad. He was in, bro. He was all in my bag, in my pockets, in my whole duffy. I was ready to get out. Basically what he is saying. Pause it. He saved up his money to get. So this reminds me of me talking to my, with my wife. I'm Kendrick Lamar in these scenarios because my <laughs> wife grew up on a farm in Minnesota, right? <laughs> and so I'm constantly translating sort of modern pop culture references to her <laughs> because I'm fluent in several dialects. <laughs> and, and what I realized, what I love about this commercial, we'll keep playing it here in a second, but Kendrick is now going to explain to the viewer what he just said. Go for it. I was ready to get out. Basically what he is saying, he saved up his money to get a local barbershop. He then made a friendly business wager with Peanut in hopes to secure more money for his business. But eventually losing it all with one roll of the dice. Ray, what you think? I think volatility is his problem, and I don't think he understands how to compound his talent and how to compound his money. What I mean is, if you just take big bets like that, you'll blow it all. You, can, you should invest in yourself, man, and then you learn more, and then when you learn more, you also make more money, and it compounds. You could have two barbershops, you could have 10 businesses, if you know how to compound. Basically, bro, what he's saying is, slow money wins the race. You can still have a big upside, even if you don't throw all your chips in the bag. Mm. Invest in yourself, leave them dice alone. You don't need to invest in the dice. That's gonna ruin everything. Spread your money out. Let it build for yourself and work gradually, slowly. Anybody that's ever made a lot of money didn't make it fast, you feel me? Feel you. Off top. PG Lane. Go ahead and pause it. Off top. So let's talk about this, TK. Mm -hmm. What I love about this, and I still want to recognize it is a type of ad. It is an advertisement yeah. in a way, although maybe it's not. And so we could talk about what it actually is. So it is Cash App funding art in a way. They're 
And this to me is not necessarily an advertisement so much as it is a sponsorship of art. When you go to a museum, it might say sponsored by Procter and Gamble, but they're not advertising a product or service to you. They are doing some sort of branding with, with their product. And, and I have less of an issue with that because they're not trying to sell you something explicitly, right? And yet they're funding a piece of art. And so I look at this and clearly it's a beautiful piece of art. It's, it's well shot. But then it's also connecting three different cultures in a way through through Kendrick. Kendrick, he's being the the sort of vessel or the middleman of communication in a way. Because what what happens quite often is some topic that seems esoteric or out of reach, like money, it becomes so complicated we just throw our hands up. Oh, it must be. Well, who's the uh, the guy in the in the commercial? Ray. What's his last name? Dahlia. Ray Dahlia. That's right. Yeah, you got to talk right into the mic. I got to tell our engineer how to talk right into the mic there. <laughs> um, and uh, and so Ray Dahlia is a you know billionaire. Dalio. Oh, Dalio. Okay. He is a. Are you sure it's not Dahlia? It's Dalio for okay. sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So Ray Dalio. He is a billionaire and uh, knows a lot about investing. But the way that he talks about it is incomprehensible to the average person. And so you bring someone in like Kendrick who can speak Ray Dalio's language, but he can also speak the language of where he grew up. And being able to bridge the gap, that's art. That is art. And there's something beautiful that's illustrated about uh, uh, illustrated about the value of what each person brings to the table. So if it's truly the case that when Ray talks, lots of people have a hard time understanding, why is he on the commercial in the first place? Because he is a person for whom his way of talking and doing things actually works. It amounted to him being a billionaire, right? Yeah. So somebody listens to him and understands it. Somebody listens to him and says, exactly the way you put it, Ray, is how it works for me. And at the same time, he's not for everybody. You need Kendrick to come in and translate it for another type of person. And that's what's beautiful because there's no single correct way to be a human being and to show up and be yourself and speak the message that is yours. There's room for everyone, no matter who you are. There's someone that's going to receive what you have to say because it comes from you and the way you put it, whether it's Ray or Kendrick, you need both types. And so I'm not against advertisements like yeah. this because I wish more corporations would fund the arts. Yeah. And this is the perfect blend of expression and communication. And that is what great art often does. I'm getting the hand signal from Professor Sean. So we'll move on to our next segment. Mm -mm -mm. This one is called Obsolete Objects. Where's my timer on your big screen there? Obsolete Objects. This is where we talk about an object that you would be fine without and maybe Maybe your life would even be better without it. Alabama, let's take a look at what we have this week. This is from Nora. She found something on Amazon. <laughs> now, this is called nothing. And it's a package, literally, that is selling nothing. And so it's the gift for someone who has everything. Buy them nothing. Buy them this cheap plastic that you're going to have shipped to them or to yourself, and then you wrap it up in more cheap plastic. 
and you give it to them because I get that it's a gag. It's a joke. Ha 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 ha. We've already done this as the minimalists, by the way. In 2017, I think it was, we did an April Fool's joke. We did an app called Nothing. And Matthew <laughs> Vella created this beautiful multi-minute video for YouTube. And it was the app for, well, it was to help you do everything. And it was nothing. It was literally, we, and we, it was a real app. We created the app. You can still download it right now. At so what happens when get you get nothing.co? You go to the app and it's a white screen. It's blank. It's <laughs> nothing. <laughs> and the commercial is great. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Matt Diavella did an amazing job with nothing, the app. And this is the physical product version of it. I, I love the joke behind it. Hey, you don't need anything else. I do have a problem with the buying of the product uh, because. Well, because you literally are selling nothing. Although maybe metaphorically, it this is the same as getting, this is better than getting a thoughtless gift anyway, because at least someone's going to laugh at it. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're selling something. I, I, I know this is today's obsolete object, but as a staunch defender of the entrepreneurial, I just want to say that you can't determine the economic value of a product merely based on what it costs to make it or based on how much substance it has. It's all about the experience of the person who desires it. They get to determine what the economic value of it is. You don't determine it as the maker. The buyer gets to determine it, right? Yeah. So this is an opportunity for people who subscribe to a certain type of philosophy to share something with a friend or family member that is not only funny, but also a form of cultural satire that's capable of making another person have an aha moment about their practices. Yes. You know, so I think that's kind of the value add. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe it's not obsolete. I wouldn't get rid of nothing. Our next segment is the Photo Friday Home Tour. This is the seventh one in this series. Every Friday, if you subscribe to the video version of the podcast, we send an email with a home tour photo of something that's going on. Sometimes it's, beautiful and pristine. Look at my home. You can take a look inside the home, but generally it's something like this. If you're watching the video version of this above my left shoulder, you will see a picture of my wife on our porch. I took this yesterday and there are three giant boxes on the porch. You also see a bird feeder there at the top of the screen. So we have a bird feeder in our, in our tree, our struggling great oak tree. Um, but we have three boxes on the porch. I call this one the returns. That's the, the name of, of this photo. You see Bex on the porch there. We ordered a file cabinet for our home to keep our papers. It's a, a decent sized file cabinet from Herman Miller. They're one of my favorite design brands. They make really great products, but they, for some reason, sent it to us via FedEx. And it looked like the FedEx person played kickball with the file cabinet by the time it got to us. Oh, my stars. That's my nightmare. What, what, Any, what part? Just ordering anything online and then heaven forbid it arrives already kind of broken up because that takes so much time for you to go back to a location, to send it back off, wait for the new one to be arrived. I dislike ordering things online for that reason. And so I dislike ordering things online because it creates a lot of extra work and it seems so frictionless in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. One click purchase and it just shows up on my door. This is what we were talking about with Star Trek 
Professor Sean's favorite show. <laughs> we were talking about this with Star Trek 50 years ago. You, you would The food would just materialize. We're doing that now, not taking into consideration all of the trouble that goes into that materializing the thing on the doorstep. And by the way, it can be wonderful to have that sort of access, mm. but it can also be a burden. When we remove all the friction, we lose traction in our lives. And then certain things show up on our doorstep <laughs> and we're like, oh. And so this to me was more of a metaphor because, yes, we're going to return this file cabinet. We'll get one that isn't broken and it will be fine. But also what happens quite often, these things show up and I'm like, oh, why did I buy this? Because maybe it looked great online. Maybe I felt the impulse to buy it at the time. But now that I have it, I just want to return it. I have to go through the whole process of returning it. So the two other boxes on the porch are two chairs we ordered for our backyard. And we really liked them. They were comfortable. And the color online was midnight. I didn't know midnight meant like a very dark blue, which is doesn't that's, that's go really counterintuitive. Yeah, it doesn't go mm -hmm. with us. Right. Yeah. And so we now we have to send these two chairs back as well. And so it's all part of the buying process. The buyer's remorse is a real thing. And the way to, to avoid buyer's remorse is A, to add a little bit more friction into the process. You're never going to avoid it completely unless you simply don't buy the thing at all. That's right, man. I, I don't know if this is the right time and place. Just let me know if you want to discuss it later. But, uh, I, I love to talk with you for a little bit about minimalism and privilege, just because I saw a question the other day in response to one of our videos where somebody said, and I, I can read it if I can uh, get my phone, but somebody said, I would like to see you all talk about minimalism for poor people, hmm. because a lot of this sounds like a bunch of people that have a lot of money and they think that spending it on expensive things is what's going to make them happy. But this seems to be a problem only for the privilege. And what about people who aren't even there yet where they need minimalism because they're still trying to get to the point of getting the bare minimum? Minimalism does involve the stuff, at least on the surface, but it's much more about the desire that we have for the stuff. As you know, Ryan and I grew up really poor. You can see it in our last Netflix film, you can see the house I grew up in, which is just totally crumbling, falling apart. And it was crumbling and falling apart when I was living there back in the 80s and 90s. And we grew up really poor. And the problem wasn't necessarily a lack of things. It was a desire for the things that we thought were going to solve the problems that we had. And it turns out in my 20s, when I climbed the corporate ladder, I made enough money to get many of those things the really nice car, the oversized house, literally the white picket fence. Those things didn't make me satisfied or fulfilled. In fact, mm. they often did the opposite because the desire for more didn't go away. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with money, right? Money can certainly buy you comfort. It cannot buy you satisfaction or fulfillment mm. or happiness. It can buy you temporary bursts of pleasure. But what does that do? That's hedonism. If our threshold for pleasure continues to increase and increase and increase, that ends up making us miserable. The reason I was even more miserable in my 20s wasn't because I was poor. I wasn't poor anymore, but I was broke because I carried those habits from my childhood forward. And I realized that 
oh, no amount of money is going to make me a better person, a more complete person. And I've been really touched by the people who I've gotten emails from where they said, I realize that I'm striving for something that is not going to make me happy. Thank you for allowing me to catch that before I went down the same path that you and Ryan went down trying to achieve. In fact, the etymology of the word agony means to strive. And so no wonder we're all walking around in extreme agony all the time because we're striving for something that isn't going to satisfy us. Now, that's not to minimize the fact that there is poverty in this world and there's extreme poverty outside the borders of America, right? I grew up in probably the bottom 5%, maybe in the bottom 2% of poverty in America, extreme poverty. But it's nowhere near what you see in Bangladesh or India or in the Congo, right? And, and so it's all relative. Privilege becomes relative in that sense as well. And what I love about something that you've said, TK, we have a video on our YouTube channel called your privilege is irrelevant. And it was a quote from you. And you were talking about, yes, privilege is a real thing. But simply using that term, oh, you are a privileged person or you are a white, cis, heterosexual male or whatever, these things become thought-terminating cliches. Here's how I'm going to shut you down. I'm not going to open up the conversation with you because, well, I'm going to judge you for not who you are, but who I identify you as. And here's what I'll say about minimalism and poverty. Minimalism is applicable to anyone who is discontented with the status quo. I personally, growing up poor, would have benefited much more from minimalism. Living a meaningful life within my means. Don't, you don't even have to call it minimalism. Call it living within your means-ism. But being intentional with your resources is always a recipe for finding contentment because the contentment isn't out there externally. The contentment is right here. I simply have to uncover that contentment. And if you make a million dollars a year, which I have never done in my life, if you are intentional with those resources, it's going to get you farther. If you make $10,000 a year, my mom never made more than $30,000 a year ever. And yet we could have been way more deliberate with our resources. Here's one last anecdote for you. When I walked away from the corporate world, I was making really good money in the corporate world, but I was broke, massive amounts of debt. When I walked away, I'd finally paid off all of my debt after a four-year plan of really being strict on my budget. That first year, I made $23,000. Mm. I took almost a 90% pay decrease, but I was more financially sound that year than I had been the last decade of making quote-unquote good money because I was now in control of my resources. That's right on. I'm going to make a controversial statement here and say the notion that minimalism is a message only for the privileged is itself a privileged assertion that can only be made if one is out of touch with the real conditions that bring about poverty. The power of consumerism, not consumption, the power of consumerism is that it shapes our core assumptions and ambitions about life itself. And it orients us towards the world in a particular way so that we pursue particular kinds of things. We value particular kinds of things and we see ourselves in particular kinds of ways. 
And this hurts the poor more than the rich because the rich can actually afford to be stupid in ways that the poor cannot. It's like if you got a lot of leeway when you're starting out a business, you can take a lot of risk, you can go without making profit for several months and still stay in business and have time to figure it out. If you don't have a lot of leeway, you can't afford to absorb the same kinds of risk that people with more financial resources can. And I would argue that this hurts the poor far more than the rich because it orients the poor towards the world in a way that reinforces the kind of illiteracy that must be overcome in order to create wealth. And I don't just mean reading literacy. I mean economic illiteracy, financial illiteracy, and so on. And so if you live a life where you're just constantly bombarded with ads telling you to buy Nike, that this is the kind of person that you're supposed to be, if you ever get the money, this is what you're supposed to do with it. Uh, if you ever pursue money, this is why you should pursue it. But it gives you no information at all about how to create Nike, how to invest in Nike, how to create alternative systems to the ones that you observe, you're bound to remain part of this same system with nothing more than the hope of one day getting to be a better consumer. You don't consume your way out of poverty. You create your way out of poverty. Most of these advertisements aren't empowering people to be better creators. Yeah, that's beautifully said. All right, y'all. Before we get to our added value segment this week, big thanks to our guests today, John Kim, Vanessa Bennett. Here's their new book. If you're watching the video version here, it's not me, it's you. And it's a book about breaking the blame cycle and relationshiping better. I love relationship as a verb. You can also check out their individual podcasts, the Angry Therapist podcast and Cheaper Than Therapy. We'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. Real quick, TK, for right here, Right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. We just had our first ever Sunday symposium. It was magical. Yaman was there. Our whole team was there. Ryan was on stage with us as well. We had a beautiful special guest. Amanda Montel was there. And we're doing our next one when this podcast comes out. It'll be next week. So less than a week away. And here's why I'm saying this. Last time we announced this on the podcast, the event sold out in less than a day. And so we're announcing this right now. You can head on over to theminimalists.com slash tour. You can find tickets to the Sunday Symposium. Now, here's what we're doing. This theater that we have, Dynasty Typewriter, beautiful theater. It's only 200 seats. We did this intentionally. Smallest event we've done in like seven or eight years, TK. Yeah. And that intimacy creates something special. We learned a lot from the first one. We're going to be doing a lot of different things with the second one. We're trying to build a loving, dogma-free community, people who come back over and over and new people who join the community and ebb in and out of our community. 100 free tickets available, 100 paid tickets available. If you can afford it, please donate for a ticket. You buy a ticket, it's a donation, and that Helps us pay for the venue, helps us pay for our staff, but it also subsidizes the people who cannot afford a ticket. We want this to be open to everyone, no matter where you are on the socioeconomic spectrum. This is happening right now monthly in Los Angeles. What did you learn from that first event, TK? Man, that everywhere you go, man, everywhere you go, people want to connect. One of the interesting observations for me was how many people who were there that grew up in church, mm -hmm. grew up in religious communities, 
and they still retain a sense of maybe moral values or spiritual values that they inherited from those religious communities, but they're no longer a part of those communities themselves and no longer desire to be a part of them, but they miss the part where you gather together with other people to talk about a common aspiration to live more intentional lives. And that's why we called it Sunday Symposium. In fact, you were a bit worried, like, oh, no, I don't want the connotation. We're doing this noon on Sunday. I didn't like it at all when you first brought that up. And now how do you feel? (laughs) Well, Well, really quickly, I didn't like it at all because I felt like we should just go with something that happens on Friday night or Saturday night where people are having drinks, having fun, and just frame it as entertainment. By having it on Sunday, it's like, what what does culture associate Sunday afternoon with? Going to church. And yeah. now we're going to have this framing of like, oh, an alternative to church. And people are going to think of it as some kind of religion or some kind of cult. And I didn't like that at all. But this event made me realize a couple of things that, number one, if we just do the Friday, Saturday night thing, it's like, we don't really have the opportunity to do what isn't being done. I think we can be good. I think we can create fun, but people are already doing that. I think by doing this on Sunday and accepting the challenge that comes with that framing, we have a chance to do something that isn't being done because the need for this is based on the fact that lots of people are rejecting what's being done and they've been rejecting it for a long time. And so people want to know what can community look like outside of depending on a church that I don't want to go to. So let's build this community together. Sundaysymposium.com, where you can get your free tickets or the paid for tickets. Like I said, if you can afford it, help us pay for the venue because Ryan and I lost a lot of money at the first one. And it's okay. <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to build this community and you can help us at least break even with that. But even, even if you can't afford it, we're providing half the tickets for free. Sundaysymposium.com. Let's build something special together. We'll have a special guest, some music, some conversation, some Q&A, a lot of love, a lot of dogma-free conversation. For our added value this week, I got a song for you. It's a guy named Knox. I stumbled across him on Instagram, TK, and it took me back to the Oddies, sort of this indie rock upbeat vibe and the song is called sneakers which is a double entendre because it's about like he said i don't run around with sneakers but like also people who sneak around behind Uh, your back right and it's a song about relationship boundaries about setting standards before you get into a relationship you don't want to be four years in a relationship and then you start to set boundaries then of course it's okay to reestablish boundaries but the best time to set your boundaries is up front, and then you can change them together as the relationship continues. And it's also a song about self-love in a way. I'm not willing to tolerate this kind of behavior in a relationship. Enjoy this song. This is Sneakers by Knox. That's our show for today. Simpletons, on behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean. Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, we got Yaman in here as well, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. You got that sugar in your voice. You live in shameless, it's a choice. You keep your laces like your boys Tied up, tied up, tied up, tied up And there's a word around this town 
It's kind of sounding like your name. And more than rumors get around. I was lined up, lined up, lined up. But cherry chapstick drama queen. Tiptoeing these downtown streets. Tried to sink her nails in me. But I don't really need to see what's under that T-shirt. I could, but I gotta fuck with me first. Girl, you know you're hotter than a fever, fever. But I don't run around with sneakers, sneakers. No, you don't even like you home and let you dirty up my soul but you just leave me all alone so time's up time's up time's up time's up but i mean i want to but i can't make those promises to loose slip lovers who gonna put double knots in this from seven little digits on the bathroom so everybody's had their hands up on your t-shirt i could put a gotta fuck with me first Under that t-shirt I could but I gotta fuck with me first Girl, you know you're hotter than a fever